everybody, and welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road and Coach Jonathan Lee, this time with our head coach, Chad Zimmerman. Hi, everybody. Welcome back, man. Thanks. Good to have you. Thank and you. our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. And we are going to answer more of the cycling and triathlon related questions that you submitted at trainerroad.com slash podcast. Um, there's something I should talk about first. Okay. There was a big announcement this week um, okay. in our world. I don't know if you've all heard of it, but... It might make us, some people a little sad. Um, well, I don't know. Like... All I can promise, like things aren't going to change, but um, some some women, a little bit of men are sad, but Chad Timmerman oh. is off the market. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Chad proposed. <laughs> so you're going a different direction. Now, congratulations, Chad. He is he's a committed man, an engaged man. Oh, we oh. brought. Uh, we have champagne for today. <laughs> uh, sorry, this isn't prepared. Okay, we're, we're going to properly celebrate here. Right. Uh, for those that are joining us live on YouTube, you can send in your congratulations. Uh, you can do that just right in the comments, and you can join us live every week. Uh, it's pretty awesome. We've, we've known Amaret, your partner for some time now. Yeah. I've known her for some time too. Yeah. It's been, uh, <laughs> almost seven years. And, and we've been waiting for so long. Um, but, uh, patiently waiting, oh, of course. He's gonna do the whole oh, thing. he's gonna, oh, 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 there's champagne being popped for the moment. There we go. <laughs> so my, my question is Chad, <laughs> did you do a deep dive on why she should marry you when you proposed? Uh, yeah, I'm always prepared. There's an extensive bulleted list. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so she's, uh, and, and congrats to you too, Emirate. Uh, if you're listening or watching to this, pretty awesome. Uh, part of the Trainer Road uh, family doesn't work here, but she's just been, uh, you and her have been, been a team for so long. So. Yeah. John, then we have bubbly water for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Would you like much. lots of champagne? <laughs> sure. <It's> absolutely. <laughs> Can't not. Okay. You can just continue. I'll pour them. Okay. Uh, so thanks, everybody, for joining us here. And you can do <laughs> it on YouTube. Uh, and like I said, uh, if you join us live, you can send in the questions that you have, and then we'll answer those questions, which is pretty great. So... <laughs> Uh, we're going to go through a number of different questions that you've submitted, but also cover some other points where we feel like we have some actionable takeaways. Uh, if, and once again, a final point on the YouTube thing, if you are joining us, you can like the video. That really helps. Comment down below if you like this video. If you don't like it, let us know what we can do to be better. Uh, and also subscribe to the channel. All those things really, really help us. So thank you, Nate. Appreciate that. So first things first that I want to mention uh, before we get into this is outside workouts uh, with Trainer Road. If you have if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, you don't know, but you can now perform your Trainer Road workouts outside with your Garmin head unit uh, or your watch. And we weren't going to mention that, but yesterday, so I have tested or I tested the watch back when we were testing this pretty early on, hmm. and and it was a tough experience when it was pretty early on. Well, I used it yesterday for my workout and it was absolutely awesome. Uh, so pretty cool. So if you have a Garmin head unit or a Garmin watch, uh, within reason, as long as it can pair with power and as long as it has the training capabilities, uh, whatever head unit or watch you have, you can use it. And it's really, really, really cool, man. Right. So I had a great workout yesterday with it. And Wahoo, uh, head units are coming Yep, or it's on the way coming soon. Uh, so pretty exciting stuff there. Uh, so you can check that out at trainerroad.com. Uh, not just training indoors, training indoors, outdoors, wherever you need to be. Uh, the other point that I want to make is for you, Nate, you recently, so in our bike racing channel and Slack here internally, mm -hmm. you shared some images of, of Strava KOM times Oh, and you're actually pretty high up on some of these descents at North star. Yeah. I have something clicked with me on descending and I wanted to share that because I think I'm not the only one that's had problems descending for a really long time. Mm -hmm. There's three things that I did differently or well, maybe four. The first one is getting uh, a very capable bike. So the Yeti SB150 mm -hmm. and with, I have DHF front and DHR rear Maxxis tires. So like really beefy, thick tires. Minion. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Minion DHF and DHR2. So the, the, what that does, and this bike, and it's so slacked out compared to my cross-country bike, is that it allows you to uh, make mistakes and it like corrects. So sometimes when the front wheel would have slipped out, mm -hmm. it doesn't, like yeah. it barely slips. And I'm like, ooh, that would have been a crash. Yep. So allowing me to make more mistakes mm -hmm. and not having to pick really, you, you pick your overall line rather than your, uh, than like looking at individual rocks on the trail. That's yeah. really important for mountain bikers, right? Yeah, yeah. You never, I mean... At times you pick a very precise line and I perhaps do that more than some, and I could probably do with doing a little bit more of that. Uh, but you, you really do kind of have a point and shoot sort of an approach mm. where you say basically like, this is where I'm going to go. And you kind of scan. That's one thing that I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with when you talk about looking ahead on the trail, cause it's extremely important on road on everything that you're doing. Yeah but you scan constantly. You're not just constantly looking ahead and locked and don't allow your eyes to drift down. No. You're kind of constantly running this like feedback loop where you go out into the horizon or where I need to go and back to where I am. And it's just constant. You're kind of picking it up in your periphery, I guess, but you're not just looking straight in front of your wheel. You're not just looking straight out in front. No, always scanning back and forth. Yep. Well, so on this bike, uh, it makes all the rocks seem so small because it has, it's like an enduro bike, but it is like actually a, a downhill bike from a few years ago. It basically it is in terms of capability. It is. Yeah. yeah. So what this has really helped is I can just go into all the turns the correct way. Cause if there's a rock there, I don't care. And I'm looking at them from far mm -hmm. away. I'm like, all those rocks are inconsequential, yeah. right? So I don't need to scan anymore. I just looked like down the trail that also makes it go. You seem like you're going way slower yeah. when you're looking down there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, like you're not micro. When you're looking you're, out ahead, you're out saying, ahead, yep. yep. And then there's no like bump where um, you don't even really feel the bumps on this bike. Where on a cross country <laughs> bike, you do that. I've done that before, and then I hit a big rock and I almost get thrown over. Yeah, that's no fun. So then you lock up when that happens a lot of the time, and then yeah. you start looking straight ahead um, or second, straight in front of you. The second thing is I bought Total Armor this year, so I've been limited by fear a lot because it mm -hmm. I, I crash. A lot. Yeah. Um, I, I think in, like in some races, I can remember crashing five times in the same race. So right. people, I, I'm pushing it, but it just, you start to, not only do you go slower, but you try different things and your body locks up if you crash a lot. So yeah. I got POC full body armor, like chest, back, arms. I have knee protectors. I have a full face helmet. Mm -hmm. I got goggles and I have a, uh, what's the neck brace? Uh, it's a alias. No, no. Atlas neck brace. Yes. Mm -hmm. Atlas um, neck brace. So neck I am brace. like all up there. I have mm -hmm. hip pads too. I should wear those. I don't wear them. Mm -hmm. Um, so that has helped me. So those two things like remove so much fear, mm -hmm. but the biggest thing is for me that unlocked it is hip foot placement. So, and this is going to be kind of hard to explain and maybe I'll stand up and do, do this too. Yeah. I'll stand up. This will look funny. Yeah. Um, I'll scoot over so you can be in frame. Um, okay. I'll switch mics. Me. Yeah. Okay. So what I, what I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm going down the trail and if I'm going to take a left turn, what I do is uh, I'm pushing my hips back into the right of the turn. So it's, it makes me, you can see me doing right here and I don't have much room, but it makes you hinge. And when you do this, it automatically weights it and I get bike body separation. So I, the bike turns over, but my hips are going out. And if I don't do that, when I mess up, I try to turn like a road bike yep. where my bottom foot is all the way down and it hits the frame yeah. and your bike's leaning, but you're leaning too. Yeah. Like if you're inside, if your outside leg on the turn is touching the frame, like it might on a road bike, uh -huh. you're going to have a huge bad time. You mean touching the top tube? Yep. Mm -hmm. But if I, but if I push my hips back and this is still, I'm still trying to weight the bike through the bottom bracket, mm -hmm. but just that like turn and push your butt out. I was getting top 10% or top 10 on Strava on like, uh, 
Strava segment that people have raced on. Yeah. So it's competitive. No, that's interesting. That's the one thing that clicked for me on the final run when we spent our day with Lee McCormick. And I basically kept up with you guys mm-hmm. for the, at least the first half of the trail. And that was the thing, just just understanding where to put my hips to get that yeah. separation where it felt comfortable. And I trusted that the bike would stay hooked up. This is a good example of, you can hear the same exact... You can hear somebody telling you to do that very thing, but you hear it in a different way Mm -hmm. and it doesn't click for one person. It will click for another because a lot of this, like we talked about last time was, you know, making sure your hips are turned into the exit of the turn, right? That's basically what we're talking about. But at the same time, if you hear that and it doesn't make sense when you're trying to move into that position, then it's useless advice. So hearing it in as many different ways as possible, I think is really helpful. Mm -hmm. Another way is try to like, you put your bottom into the turn Mm because I was turning my hips, but that wasn't waiting me far enough like i wasn't getting the bike body separation Mm -hmm. and by doing the by putting my hips back then i could for some reason put the bike down and turn um so we're gonna go saturday or friday yeah friday cool i'm excited to go i know Uh, i'm one big crash away from going right back to where i was (laughs) with fear but that happens it does it does you'll get over it 14 steps i thought that said hip replacement i thought we were talking like preemptive hip replacement you're like you are serious (laughs) (laughs) just get new hips that'll make you faster right um so and actually we should just uh jump straight ahead in that because the next day for me on saturday will be the tahoe trail 100 Yep. You would be doing it, but you don't have an XC bike yet. Yeah. You're waiting for the Pivot Mach 4 SL. Yes. Exciting bike. And I rode it last week on, I did one lap on my SB150, but with the On DH, the Tahoe Trail 100 course. Yeah, and I did the DH, the DH, tires. Yeah. And, and the, the tires. Yeah. And the front tire too had a downhill casing. Yeah. I swear I was going 300 watts on a flat and getting dropped by people doing just aerobic pace. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how many watts, the, you know, heavy, heavy tires. On a heavy bike and heavy oh, tires. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Yep. It's absolutely crazy. And I had three liters of water. I was probably yeah. 45 pounds bike and water. Right. Um, yeah. It's pretty crazy. Um, so this been that course, you could have done it on a gravel bike. Like you can get around that course on a gravel bike just fine. Yeah. It's not like a technical course at all. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's not exactly my dream course, but, uh, we're going to do something here, Chad. <clears throat> so basically I have my main goal this year is nationals. But being sick for, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Being sick for three months or sorry, three weeks leading into this, everything else, it kind of derailed any hopes of getting a podium. Less than ideal, yeah. So at this point, I'm really just looking, (laughs) he's pouring more champagne. At this point, I'm really just looking at this like my main goal, cheers indeed. Cheers. Cheers to all. And my main goal is really just to, to perform well next year at nationals. That's my main, main, main. Yeah, so that's the, that's the real goal. So I'm think, looking at this thinking a 60-mile mountain bike race a couple weeks before nationals probably isn't the ideal preparation for an, a 90-minute race. No, certainly not. And you're not going to do that next year, I assume. Yeah, but we're going to see how my body responds to this. I figure it's a good opportunity to experiment with something and see how yeah, it goes. In which case, maybe you will do it next year. So maybe you'll find there's something productive that comes of this. Like I doubt it two weeks out from such a long endeavor. Right. But like you said, I mean, this is the, the information or the intel you'll garner from this endeavor and how it relates to nationals mm-hmm. is, is good information. And really you're on a fact finding mission this entire year and part oh, yeah. of next year anyway. Yeah. And it's how he races it. So mm. this is a oh, yes. five-ish hour race. Mm-hmm. If you bury yourself, there's one way, yep. but if Jonathan goes aerobic, mm-hmm. a five, it could just be a five hour it could be a conditioning, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. as he has a big week coming in, this could be his last biggest ride and he could start a two week taper sure. or maybe like a 80% taper. Absolutely. Next week. And that might work really well. Yeah. So this is a good year to figure that out. And yeah. so what about, you want to talk about corral position? Yeah. Yeah. Because you can explain that better than I can. So yeah. like, 
Leadville has, so it, this is a Leadville qualifier and I'm doing Leadville this year and Leadville starts you out or, or segments everybody into corrals, they yeah. call them, but it's basically just start waves. Yeah. And they have those start waves worked out with like different color combinations. So it can actually be pretty confusing. Yeah. It, so you can explain it. So it goes, it's, it's so important. You mm -hmm. can add an hour and a half. I think that's like the rule of thumb. If you're mm -hmm. in the white corral, which is the very, very back. Mm -hmm. So if it's your first time doing Leadville and you get an entry and you don't do a qualifier mm -hmm. or you've never done it before, you're at the very back of like 2,000 people trying to pass them so on single track. So a 90 minute handicap from the very start? I, uh, no, just it just takes longer. The whole course takes longer. Yeah, for you'll be stuck. You'll have to walk a lot of climbs. Sure. You'll be stuck behind people. And you have to thread through literally hundreds of riders. Yeah, yeah. Thou thousand. Yeah. And then you won't have uh, be with people on the flatter sections that are faster. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's all, maybe it's an hour. I don't know. Uh, something I can put in the comments what the rule of thumb is, but it's a lot of time. Uh, so it goes gold, silver, red. Gold is like, a Tahoe Trail to qualify that only Levi Leipheimer like qualifies like yeah, yeah. it's crazy and those are <laughs> really the real fast. pros and those are people that are pro and have won before done well like pro yeah. pace before it's pretty much the pro gets a lineup in the gold yep. and then there's silver and red red is achievable for I think someone over four watts per kilo I missed it by twelve minutes last year but uh, that was bad descending stuff and mm -hmm. supposedly Tahoe Trail is a hard one to get red I don't know mm -hmm. Jonathan can totally get red though on um, I think on just a <clears throat> sweet spotish kind of day like riding at 80 percent he can do a 515 at north star mm -hmm. um you i mean depending when we raced together and last yeah. year i was worse than i am this year yeah you can totally take 12 minutes out on me usually take like 45 minutes out of me so right right well, hopefully we'll see yeah but the big thing this year is they're putting a gap between the red corral and the corrals below it so last year i was in the green corral um and they're putting i'm not sure what the gap is i think it's like five minutes to make it less congested Mm -hmm. But the thing is on that is if Jonathan was a green person, that means he wouldn't get the uh, the the drafting benefit on the flat sections mm -hmm. of the people on the red. He has you would have no chance to. I mean, you maybe could catch up, but you'd be gassed. Yeah, It'd you'd be, a, be a, and you'd be in no man's land for a good amount of time. Yep. So if Jonathan speaking. can just do a five fifteen here at uh, Tahoe Trail, which I think he can by moderate pace, mm -hmm. especially that the everyone slows down the second lap kind of like an aerobic day with some sweet spot climbs mm -hmm. could be a good training benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you actually respond pretty well to big long days too. I do. Yeah. The yeah. body mm -hmm. usually does. Yeah, You tolerate them real well. Mm -hmm. And if you could try to, I think with your fitness, if you were, didn't have the sickness, you could get silver, mm -hmm. but really you line up at the front of red. Oh you're, yeah. You're, you're silver. Yeah, yeah uh, exactly. And there's not that many people in red and silver that you'll be fine. Yeah. I mean, my goal the, is the only gap they're inserting is between red and green. Uh, no, I think there's maybe one more grab gap. I'm not, I don't know, mm -hmm. but I think, uh, there's like three more corrals and there's another gap. Okay. Yeah. But I'm not sure. That's cool. Yeah. So I, I'm just going to shoot for the 515 uh, range, and, and that's kind of the goal. Uh, placement be what placement is. That's just really kind of the goal. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, I have something similar, uh, really, we're sharing this just so then hopefully you can pick up principles that you can apply to whatever context you have. So once again, it's not like it, yes, it's the A priority event for this year, but really my main goal is next year. So I'm willing to experiment. <laughs> So be honest with yourself when you have these events coming up. Mm. Can you experiment? Do you want to experiment? Nice. And look forward, look ahead, and make those decisions based off of that. And also be realistic with like your strengths. Like for example, if I knew that doing a big long day like this really hurt me, and yeah. I usually don't yeah, respond you're not, well, you're I wouldn't not flying do it. totally blindly. You've yeah. done this sort of stuff before, and yeah. you got to think about uh, for you, Jonathan, because again, I think it's a reasonable pace. Mm -hmm. Bring that extra bottle. Like, don't do anything that's gonna like get super dehydrated where you cramp. Yeah. Or you know, because those point. are the things that happen when you get 
we had at uh, Carson City, when you go so much lower from either dehydration or um, low low eating or something. It takes that, a long time to recover. Yeah, exactly. When you get to that state, it it's like- It can take weeks. Yeah, exactly, it to get runs, it back. It runs your way down. So just over, <clears throat> over hydrate. Don't worry about the weight because you don't matter. Yeah. I think you can get five hours pretty easily. You got 15 minute buffer and you're, you're good. Yeah, yeah, that's the goal, so. Should be good. good we should get the timings for like the different aid stations based on someone else's Strava time. Yeah. Just so, so you know. Checkpoints. Yeah. What the pace, pace is. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would be a good idea to do. Okay. We'll figure that out. Just put it on your top tube sticker. Yeah. I could do that. Yeah. Um, for everybody that's going to be racing that race, that's listening to this podcast, we'll see you all there. Uh, say hi. Uh, Nate, uh, Nate will be up there, not racing, but doing lifts possibly that day. You said? Possibly. I'm yeah. going to try to get the family up there. I've cool. been traveling a lot and I got to yeah. spend family time, but you know what? I will just bring them. There we go. They're going to like Lower Star. We're talking about Saturday. Saturday, yeah. Saturday, yeah. yeah. So I, 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 I plan to be there too, but I'm getting over a head cold. We'll see. Yeah. I, I plan to be there. Dude, I want to write some it, It's a question of whether or not I'm going to be on a bike or not. I'm going to blow your mind. <laughs> I don't doubt that. I'm like I've, a different person. I've heard about My family times. will be up there too. So oh, cool. It's a, oh, they'll play with Simon. Deal. Yeah, oh, it's perfect. Yeah, it's okay. like Peaches, I mean, it's going to be a party. Yeah, the whole thing. So if you're up there, let us know uh, and, and say hi to us when we're up there. It should be a ton of fun. Uh, I might grab your wheel when I'm out there and kind of get towed along for a bit. Do we want to mention that? that bike setup? Uh, yeah, there? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. So we talked about Leadville last week. Oh yeah. This is funny. <clears throat> and I was like, uh, yeah, maybe I'll do a gravel bike. I saw a few people <laughs> on drop bar bikes. And then I was told by uh, Keegan Swenson this is a quote. Uh, and a couple other folks, you'd be an idiot to ride a gravel bike. <laughs> yeah, okay. But this is to make the whole thing more interesting for you. It's a good and point. And a bit better challenge. That was the point. Like we weren't thinking of the fastest way we're thinking of Jonathan yeah. isn't going to enjoy this. How yeah. can he make him enjoy it? And if nah. you did a gravel bike, the whole thing gets more technical. Yeah. So, and, and to be clear, Leadville itself is plenty challenging and getting a, a fast time eight or is nine plenty challenging. Tougher. Right. <laughs> um, but basically what I was told is that by, you know, you're just going to have a lot, you're going to have a longer day. Uh, because of the fact that you know you just have to go slower, and then those little bumps add up. Oh God! When you're you, not you know you're gonna shielded. Be in a bad way over the last few hours. So I'm back to the SB100. We need to have cameras at the aid stations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to get pictures for sure, like we did last year of you. Yeah, yeah. it was good. I'm I'm excited. So I'm gonna be at Leadville. Mm-hmm. I don't think I bought a plane ticket yet, but no, we just have to get it all sorted. And then your dad's gonna be there too. Um, yeah, I think so. Cool. Yeah, so that we're gonna have fun. two different aid station oh, nice. people. Yep. And we'll it'll swap nice off, and it'll be. We're going to have to get two cars. I know. It'll be really nice. Mm. So, yeah, it should be good. But anyways, uh, some points on this. When you're talking about a race like Leadville and you're trying to decide what sort of bike you should use, and we'll use Leadville for an example, but we'll try to, once again, relay principles you can apply to whatever race you're doing. But in this case, it's a really long day. And when you have a long day, more time on the bike, you need to Mm. take that small hit that you take you know, those little bumps and you need to understand that they are going to feel much, much, much worse. And their effect is going to magnify as the day goes on. So when you're trying to decide, should I take, or even like a road bike or a gravel bike on something like, uh, uh, if you're looking like Belgian waffle ride, right. Once again, think about the bumps adding up. And the other side of it too, is it comes down to the rider. Like Alex Grant last year, we had him on the podcast, incredible athlete. Uh, he, uh, he's going to be racing Leadville again. I'm sure he did it on a hardtail, but if you know, I'm to go do, I'm probably going to have a faster day on a full suspension because number one, he's going to have a shorter day out there. So he's going to have less time for that to affect him. That's a huge thing. What people don't understand is Alex is doing six hours and (laughs) you're doing 10 or 11 hours. Right. And you're like, well, the pros do a hard tail, but you're on four to five more hours of bumps. Yeah. 
If you, they knew you, they were going to be out there for that long, they'd be on a full. You snap. basically have a muscle buffer. You know, your muscles do certain things early on in the race that they can't do later in the race, and then that yeah. all that shock transfers to your skeletal yeah. system, your joints. It's your, like your yes. suspension, and then it just like exactly. Dies. Yeah, it's a suspension that kind of yeah. gradually gives out on you. And I, I think uh, it's got to take some type of uh, calories to be able to like like support yourself that whole time with a hardtail. Oh yeah. Uh, rather than a full suspension where the suspension is taking that shock for you. Yeah. It makes a big difference. And then as speed increases on something like a descent, the bike's capability hopefully increases as well, or the rider's capability increases. So you have to be realistic with yourself. When you see somebody like Mm -hmm. Alex Grant racing a hardtail out there, maybe that's because he has, you know, years and years and years of experience racing at a professional level. He's very good technique wise too. So when he, bombs down power line or anything else like that, he's okay doing that. But if you're realistic with yourself, just think about your abilities and your time frame. And honestly, in most cases for us amateurs, going for a bike that's going to be kinder to us is almost always a better choice. Almost always. Uh, it's just going to make the day more enjoyable, probably going to make you faster too. Um, you may carry an extra pound or two, but it's probably going to make you faster. So the one thing that this is like totally optimizing that we don't have to do, mm-hmm. but your bike is so capable. Mm-hmm. I would put, you have a 120 on the front. I yeah. would go 110 if you, like, that was, that's even, so marginal gains. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've contemplated putting on like a, a 100 millimeter fork. Yeah. Actually I mean? 100 would be great for you mm-hmm. um, for that race. Cause yeah. it's not really needed. You know, yeah. I have that ribbon SL, the MRP ribbon SL incredible fork, but for Leadville, probably don't need it. And yeah. to what gain does that just save weight? Yeah, it would save weight and it would change the, change the angle of the bike, the head tube angle, effective head tube angle. Oh, I gotcha. yeah. So it would basically okay. steepen things up. Uh, which would put me in a slightly better climbing position. Okay. So really be weight and then that. So that's freaked out. And yep. you'd be a little bit yeah, more aero exactly. too, wouldn't you? Uh, technically, yeah, because would. we lower the front. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, that could be something that I do there. I just have to decide if I really want to spend money on a 100 millimeter fork for one I, race. Don't do it. You know, Because really what's the difference to. if you do, I think you're going to break eight. So what if you do like a... Uh, 750 and a 752. (laughs) Like, it makes no difference. Yeah, and the one thing that's really nice about that fork in general, which will be nice on this race, is that it has this initial plushness. Unlike a RockShox fork, which is much more firm off the top, this has so much initial plushness right off the top that, like, Mm. bumps are entirely erased. And that sort of thing adds up over the day. You know, it'll feel really nice. Yeah, of course, like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, anyways, interesting stuff. Uh, If you're going to Leadville, also let us know, because it'd be cool to see you all there. Oh, yeah. We saw lots of folks last year. It'd be great to see more. Uh, the first question comes from the forum. If we're ready to jump in there. I'm ready. Awesome. Cool. Uh, it says during the last podcast, you had a really interesting deep dive into <coughs> DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. Thanks. One of the things you talked about was the effect of the mental state on the perception of DOMS, stress and depression. Uh, I've been wondering about it from the other side, how training impacts mental processing. I recently had a three week, three race week and dug really deep for all three races. I had a sudden lowering of mental resilience and heightened response to stress for about 48 hours after the third one. My guess is that it's related to a rise in cortisol levels, but that's just a guess and not anything based on knowledge. Is there any chance you could do a deep dive on this subject? Uh, is there a gender difference in play as well? So that's a, that's a good point. Uh, and <clears throat> our families probably pick this up quicker than we do or our coworkers, the people we spend time with. Sure. Yeah. And we've, we've done maybe one or two deep dives on cortisol before, so Mm -hmm. I won't rehash all that or rather I'll touch on it. And cortisol is absolutely a component Mm -hmm. here. So instead, let's just turn this to oxidative stress. 
because that's it's it's a little more comprehensive. It's not just narrowing it down to that one single thing, cortisol. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's just do um, what I've termed a shallow dive. We're not going to go super deep on it, but let's <laughs> let's do a those are more. dangerous. That's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> Don't dive head first. <laughs> a cannonball. I'm yeah, a, I'm a risk taker. What can I say? Okay, so. When we oxidize fuel, so when we produce energy from fuel, mm-hmm. it's oxidation, right? I mean, we're doing aerobic work, which means we're utilizing oxygen, and oxygen oxidizes fuel. Oxidation creates the, the what we've heard more generically termed as free radicals, and then maybe more generically antioxidants, and more specifically reactive oxygen species. But in any case, these are produced, mm-hmm. and our body has to tolerate them, but training and diet do this for us. They help us do this. And training helps us improve our adaptive capabilities so that we can process more of this oxidative stress. Hmm. So really it's just about adapting to oxidative stress. Um, and, and there is, so, so training does a number of things. I mean, it helps us adapt to that oxidative stress. It also improves our insulin sensitivity, which is just a win all around. It improves our, the, the, um, capabilities of our mitochondria, so our aerobic development, Mm -hmm. improves our muscle function. It lessens the possibility of chronic disease. It reduces aging effects, um, and it enhances our recoverability. So a lot of positive effects, um, Mm -hmm. especially if you're an athlete. Um, But there's always a limit, and that limit is overtraining. And we, and we, we basically push ourselves to that point pretty frequently. We try to get close to it with actually embarking into it. So when you talk about overtraining, are you talking about just training too much? Or are you talking about re- like, really like the overtraining where you've overreached yourself yeah, chronically well, for overreaching overtraining? And I'm not trying to be, you know, throw all these terms around and make it needlessly confusing. But mm-hmm. I mean, we, we pr- specifically overtrain and it's called overreaching so that we can push ourselves to a point that our bodies aren't accustomed to adaptation occurs. And then now we can push our bodies to a further point. Mm-hmm down the road. So we flirt with overtraining all the time. That's the nature of what we do. We push mm-hmm. ourselves to a point of uh, overload such that our bodies rebound more strong and come back more strongly than, than they entered the process. It's the only way to grow. Yep. Mm-hmm. So in these early stages of overtraining, which is basically what we do over a loading cycle. So over mm-hmm. like a three week loading cycle, followed by a recovery week, we push ourselves as close to, as close to overtraining as we can get without actually dipping into the, the negative side of things. Mm-hmm. And this creates an autonomic imbalance. So when we talk about our autonomic system, which is the other side of our, uh, our central nervous system, the stuff that is basically out of our control, um, we, through racing and through training, we actually elevate our sympathetic tone. So our fight or flight responses get amped up. We see this right in a race and crit races, masters racers getting upset and wanting to hit people. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. 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 No, <laughs> has, has a big impact on personality mm-hmm. and on emotion and yeah. And on your mood state. Yeah. Um, so what's interesting about this is, is over the course of this, as your ANS system, your, your autonomic nervous system gets kind of jacked up and that fight or flight response is heightened. Mm-hmm. We actually see a form of exaggeration or exagger- exaggerated strength and speed. You actually get this bump that says, I'm on a good track. I need hmm. to keep this up. Hmm. And so we perpetuate this whole vicious cycle by recognizing that we've had these bumps in fitness and, and capabilities and we heap more training on top of it when in actuality, we should probably do just the opposite start to back things off because we're starting to approach dangerous territory. Hmm. So the problem there becomes that high performance drives more training, drives more racing. And often enough, that's what puts us into that place we don't actually want to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it's usually accompanied with some form of health impairment and everything from muscle weakness, even atrophy, um, that's in severe cases, of course, fatigue, mitochondrial dysfunction. So our aerobic capacity actually starts to diminish Hmm. chronic inflammation, which is, you know, just the body in a heightened 
immune response, heightened inflammatory state, um, carbohydrate intolerance, chronic disease, our rate of aging actually increases, body fat amasses, all these undesirable things happen once we push ourselves too far past that point mm. of uh, adaptation, positive adaptation. Mm. Um, and this sets the stage for something called parasympath uh, parasympathetic overtraining. So that's the other side of things. That's the, the rest and digest side of things becomes amplified. Mm. Really bad things happen, neurological and hormonal exhaustion is how it's often termed, and this is absolutely where you don't want to go. So with that in mind, what, I don't even know who, who we're talking to. So what our forum member yeah. submitted, mm -hmm. he's, he's basically racing himself into this state, getting closer and closer and closer to it. So he's elevating this sympathetic drive. Mm -hmm. Fight or flight response is just climbing, climbing, climbing. And this can push him to a point of non-adaptive oxidative stress. Mm -hmm. So you train poor, you train properly and, and you gradually progress things such that your body's keeping up with things racing it's hard it's hard to do that i mean mm -hmm. you can go out there and you can try to sit in you can try to hold back but <laughs> a race situation doesn't necessarily allow that right and what this leads to is poor recovery and then of course poor subsequent uh, subsequent performance so every race past that point is going to be a little less mm -hmm. uh powerful uh, it's just not going to be as, as good a racing experience as racing experience as he's hoping for and, and so what happens when we incur this non-adaptive non oxidative stress is we do, yes, get an increase in cortisol. We also get an increase in catecholamines like uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine. And, and for what it's worth, cortisol also antagonizes insulin. So this, this, this means we can have you know, cortisol's up, insulin's down. There's an there's a, a, a interchange there or an interplay there, but it, it's not a big concern with us because athletes tend to be particularly insulin sensitive. Uh -huh. So it's not a big deal. High insulin, high insulin levels in athletes, especially during exercise, not, not a huge concern, but there is the closest thing I can get to a gender link or a gender uh -huh. effect is that it does lower testosterone. So uh -huh. the more you beat yourself up, testosterone levels decline, 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 uh -huh. and being, and testosterone being higher in men males than it is in females. That's, that's yeah. So there's, there's a little bit of a gender link right there. Uh -huh. And then of course, um, it affects your sleep, sleep quality, which can mean slow onset of sleep and a lot of wakefulness during your sleep, uh -huh. all of which is undesirable. So basically he's just racing himself into this, this, this state, um, too much of a, too much of a sympathetic slant. Yeah. So this is <clears throat> the interesting part that I've noticed about this. And I guess we'll get into how we'll combat this and this probably falls in line, but it's pretty simple. I've kind of found that, you know, I've experienced this, like when I'm getting close to peak fitness and I may be racing a lot, doing that sort of stuff, mm -hmm. I start to experience if I go to, if I'm racing too much, I'm like, I had a hard workout, but then I go and do the Tuesday night race. And then I do the Wednesday night race or the Thursday night race. And mm -hmm. then I might race on the weekend. And my, my training plan did not call for that. And I'm just adding in too much. That's when I start to see this sort of stuff. But the big thing that I've found is that I can counter it with going back to looking at the other side of things. Right. And it's really the recovery, the meals, <clears throat> making sure that I'm eating right, making sure that I'm sleeping right, uh, doing all that stuff, you know, yep. it's a uh, com combating it as possible, I guess. Absolutely. And, and, and it's, it's a tough balance to walk because as performance starts to improve, it becomes more motivating and you have to rein yourselves in, you have to rein yourself in. <laughs> happens, and, and at right? times you also have Good to race. exploit it. When, when that opportunity presents itself and you're feeling really good and you can hit those high numbers and you can perform those high quality workouts and do it really well, mm -hmm. you kind of got to make hay while the sun's shining, right? Mm -hmm. So so you have to decide when is the proper time to cut it off. And that just comes with experience yeah. and consideration of all the other things that are taking place. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mentioned it all the time. There's, you know, our, our training on the bike isn't the only stressor that's affecting us. Mm-hmm. So that has to be. Wait till you're married, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I'm sure it'll be wonderful. <laughs> it will. We've been honeymooning for seven years. We'll go for another <laughs> 10 or 20. It's cool. 
Um, so, so how do we combat this um, non-functional or non-productive uh, oxidative response or uh, damage? Mm -hmm. um, in general, it, we do it through proper progression. So, so from the general side, we're not talking about this racing three times in a week scenario. We're just talking about in general. Properly progress your workouts. Your body can keep up with the stresses you're inflicting on it. Adaptation takes place, and you know everything goes smoothly. We hit that recovery week and. Come in, come again for another round, um, which you know, just boils down to adequate recovery, proper diet, adequate sleep, proper stress management, the ones we talk about all the time. And then overall encompassing all of that is simply listening to your body, mm -hmm. recognizing when you have pushed to the point where hopefully you learn that if I go any farther than this, bad stuff's going to start to happen. And it's going to be a setback that's just going to derail everything. Mm -hmm. Even if it's only for a handful of days, it just, it sucks the motivation away. It can have an impact on your fitness, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, in the case of the guy who's racing back to back to back with, I'm guessing, maybe a day or two off in between each, but doing three weeks in a race, mm -hmm. is that what uh, Yeah, three races in a week. Yeah. 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 You, mm -hmm. just, you just have to prioritize your recovery in all its forms that I just mentioned above all else. And mm -hmm. we talk about this a lot of times when we discuss stage racing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're already thinking about tomorrow's race during the, during the stage you're in right then and there. You're eating for that next day. When you go home, that recovery has to be taken or when you go back to your hotel or wherever you're staying that recovery has to be taken very seriously, prioritized mm -hmm. above all else. And of course that includes your nutrition, your hydration, again, your stress management, getting off your feet and just resting, recuperating. Yeah. To paraphrase, to paraphrase, <laughs> when you Sum get up, Nate. tired, you get cranky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much all this science just, is saying. Yep. Just re uh, rewind, scrap so all that. <laughs> when this forum user does all these races and he's like, ah, oh, things stress me out more. Yeah, everybody. When it's you're a, tired or hungry, Everything uh -huh. like things that would normally be okay. And you see the most with kids, right? Oh yeah. Things that are normally would be fine. Like, I don't know. They don't get their they juice. Don't, yeah. Yeah. yeah sure. Right. Yep. And sometimes they're like, okay. They're and other times fussy. it is three hours of crying. Yeah. They don't get their juice. Yeah. Uh, same thing with adults. And they don't get a nap or they, yeah. you know, they played yeah. a ton that day. That's we're just like that. Most yeah. of us manage our emotions a little bit better, but you can still see indications <laughs> most of, of the most of us in general. But then when you like, when you do it, the extra, extra stress. Oh yeah. When you get the extra, extra stress, <laughs> glad that wasn't full. <laughs> um, <laughs> I talk with my hands, people. Uh, yeah, it, it can be really hard. Yeah, yeah. The, the other thing to think about with this, I, uh, really, once again, if you're racing three times in a week, so like I, even if it's small twilight sort of stuff, I, Doesn't matter. I don't often race three times a week uh, unless I'm really going towards something because it's it, every time I race, and this may be me being overdramatic, but... I, I, I def, I build it up in my mind and, and I put myself mentally speaking through quite a lot in a race in the sense of how I prepare for it and then how I execute through that. Yeah. And that does take a toll and I recognize the need to kind of relax. So when I do that three times a week, it's pretty tough. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the whole distinction or non-distinction when our, our brains see race stress and they see the, the psychological aspects mm -hmm. of race stretch, stress, that whole non-differentiation between what is, what is real and what is in the brain our minds effectively can't tell the difference. So they respond mm -hmm. the same way. This stress, this fight or flight response and all, everything that goes with it mm -hmm. gets elevated. Yeah. Um, there's a couple people on the, on the live <laughs> feed or live stream uh, are asking what the champagne's for. Yeah. It's because Chad is getting married. Yes. Yes. So, so if you're joining us late, that's yes. exactly what it's for. That that's, explains the 8 a.m. champagne. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Mark's question. He says, recently I lost 15 pounds and as expected, my speed, particularly on climbs, increased. Moreover, my power seems to have increased as well. This is not a problem. Uh, this is good. Yeah. End of question. Great job, <laughs> yeah, Mark. Good. Way to go, Mark. Glad you're, glad you're doing so well. Um, he says, I measure via a Quark D0 meter, a power meter. So it should be 
accurate, uh, but the increase of 10 to 15 Watts on any given ride seems disproportionate to any increased training load. I wonder, and this is what he's positing here. He mm -hmm. says, I wonder if not having to supply blood to the excess fat, etc., the things he's lost changes power readings. So the question is, does weight loss contribute to increased power due to increased, and he says in quotes, metabolic efficiency. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a, that's a good question. One to it's ponder question, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, first off, let's differentiate between weight loss and fat loss. Yeah, it's a good point. So we're going to assume that you're talking about fat loss. Um, if you lose weight, typically, it, ideally it comes from fat, but if it comes from muscle, then that can absolutely hamper your power output. Mm -hmm. So the fact that your power is going up and your weight's coming down, I'm going to assume this is all fat loss he's or just maybe optimizing. even muscle loss. He's just optimizing his composition, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is good. Yep. And then, um, in any case, anytime you can improve that ratio between your strength and the power you're putting out, that's a win, especially if you can do it healthfully. Um, and then second, let's clarify what metabolic efficiency is for those people who maybe have not heard that term or don't know what it means. For sure. Um, it's basically turning your fuel combustion into mechanical work. So mm -hmm. regardless of whether your fuel comes from carbohydrate or fat or even protein, in some cases, it's how much of that actually makes it to mechanical work and isn't dissipated or lost as heat. Mm -hmm. And typically... It ranges anywhere from, I've seen 19 to 27%, but most of us fall right around 23%. Mm -hmm. And most of the calculations that you'll see for kilojoules to kilocalories and, and vice versa, um, I think nail it right around 25%. Yeah. Those other ones are like extreme outliers on the side, like yeah. the 27 oh, and very, the very much so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So most people are real close to 23. Just to tell, like, I just want to hammer home this point is that when you're doing work, only 23% of the work that you're doing is making it to the pedals. Yeah. The rest is heat. Yes. Isn't that crazy? So like I'm 70, assuming you're 23% <laughs> metabolically efficient. Yeah. 27% yeah. of, or sorry, 70. It'd be 73. 73% of your. We, we hemorrhage energy as heat. Yeah. It's yeah. all heat. Yeah. It's, if you think about that, it, that's why we always talk about fans being extremely important Hugely inside. Important. I mean, you can, yeah. And, yeah. and outside making sure that you're optimizing everything to make sure you're cool. If you were a hundred percent efficient, possible. you would win every bike race ever. <laughs> It'd be right? amazing. Cause right? you'd, 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 uh, what, four times your power output. Yeah, exactly. You quadruple yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So you'd be sailing along at 1,000 watts. 1,000 watts. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't yeah. be a big deal. Yeah. yeah. It's just crazy, right? Yeah. yeah. And burning the same amount of calories. You're right. It's pretty amazing to think that's about. That's very amazing. Thing. Yeah. Same caloric output or yeah. in intake. Yeah. Uh, just Great. amazing. Output. If only. <laughs> we, we are very good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's and, and this, uh, so this, this figure, let's just say it is 23% across mm -hmm. the board. Um, it's, it's hard to budge. It's, mm. it's it, changes in metabolic efficiency are, are not easy ones to acquire. Some say it's impossible. Mm. Um, I, I don't know if I agree with them. It's r frankly a discussion. I lose interest in really quickly because <laughs> uh, there's just no point to it. Right. Um, okay. So, um, you, I'm going to use this opportunity to do a bit of a fat deep dive mm. because I don't think we've really talked about fat before outside of the context of ketogenic diets and fat adaptation and stuff. That we've is, done is some super, of these, yeah. but it's been a while. Which super, uh, we also, we, we get that question a lot every week. I see them, uh, asking people asking us to talk about keto talk diets. About we talked about it a lot, a lot, a lot. A lot. <laughs> I know. And, uh, we had like for years Yes. and some people are like, why don't you talk about keto? I'm like, well, we probably have 10 solid episodes. So it's about yeah, it. We beat yeah. that topic to death. Yeah. So this is us just diving into fat, applying <coughs> the knowledge. Can I just, yeah, just yeah, quickly please. talk about my DEXA scan? Because it's really like yeah, good sure. for me right it's, now. It's yeah, on, yeah. The, yeah. on the same page. So yeah. I just I just did another DEXA, which is the where we get the x-rays to scan, like uh, the gold standard for body composition. And I thought I was like getting a bunch more muscle. Mm -hmm. So I was like 195. Mm -hmm. And I looked at my best... My, no, I'm just saying, you see that weight on the scale. Yeah. And you're like, mm, oh, it's got to be muscle. Yeah. I know. Well, I was, my strength was going up. And you, and were, you were lifting? Yeah, I was lifting a lot. Yep. Um, I, 
So my best was last January at like 12% on DEXA. And 12% on DEXA is pretty lean. It's That's it's calipers. It's more lean. like the eight or something. Yeah. yeah. So I had one more pound of muscle than back then. But I was 185 in January and I was 195. So the rest, like those nine pounds, was all fat. Chub. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I got nine pounds of fat comparatively. So I've, I pretty much have nine pounds of fat to be at that same body composition I was before. So now I'm at like 15.6. Yeah. And um, what happened is I did those like three three to four weeks of travel. Mm -hmm. And during that, I just, you, and you talk about this could be good, but there wasn't a French fry I didn't eat. <laughs> yeah. I drank the, the whole time, like right. having hamburgers and two dinners and, yeah. I don't know uh, and then not exercising, just like yeah. sitting in conferences, watching speakers and like eating French fries. Yeah. It's not it was, drinking a beer. I mean, certain things were out of your control, certain were, were within it, but uh, you, you partied, you indulged a bit. And maybe yeah. you didn't eat three weeks of it, but that's that's how it lined up. It's how it worked yeah. out. You rolled with it and here we are. Super motivated now to train. Nine, nine pounds of chub. There we are. It's yeah. already gone down some since the DEXA, but I'm going to try to get oh, yeah. DEXAs every month. But anyway, you're, you're conscious of it and you know how to address it. The nice part is if you do a DEXA, you know the percentage of... Like I mm -hmm. thought it was muscle. And yeah. I think a lot of people, they lift weights, you oh, get yeah. a little hungry. You're like, yep. this is all muscle. It's not. <laughs> no. I mean, it's fair enough. Uh, no. Not always. Yeah. So let's get into some <clears throat> fat talk. Okay. So um, let's let's talk fat. Um, the mm -hmm. fat is stored in what is called adipose depots. So so different places around the body, different forms of storage. Um, there are several of them. They are uh, subcutaneous, which is under the skin. That's the stuff that we don't like in terms of vanity, right? Because yep, it's, almost entirely. It's the yep. squishy. It's the squishy stuff yep. we don't like. And then there's visceral, and I'm going to elaborate on these two. So, so cool. I mean, feel free to mm -hmm. interject. But um, visceral, which is in the organs, or more accurately, it's around the organs. Um, intermuscular. And then there's also yellow marrow, yellow bone marrow, and breast. And we're not really going to cover those two forms of adipose depots. Mm -hmm. Rather, we're going to talk about the subcutaneous, the visceral, and the intermuscular cool. um, at depth, mm -hmm. in depth. Uh, the subcutaneous, um, the interesting thing about that is it's not uniformly spaced. So it's, it's in your hypoderma. So a couple layers of skin down, it's these you know, little pockets of, of uh, fats underneath your skin. And, and because it's not uniformly spaced, you automatically think cellulite, right? That's not exactly what it is. Cellulite is actually herniated cells that have left their the, their connection with the connective tissue, they move around. It's not, it's not exactly the same thing, hmm. but the fact is it's not uniformly spaced, whereas visceral, which we'll get to in a second, is it's, it's semi-fluid. Hmm. Um, this form of fat is far less concerning in terms of health risk. Hmm. Uh, even a person packing a lot of excess adipose or uh, subcutaneous adipose tissue doesn't necessarily mean they're unhealthy. Mm -hmm. So you can get away with having a fair amount of this on your body without being a direct threat to your overall health. I've seen this with certain cyclists before, right? Like uh, when I've been in a race and I'm like, hey, that person's not as lean as me and they're blowing still past me fast. on the climb, right? Yeah. Yep. You see, like, I see that fairly often. Still be healthy. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, this form of fat in particular is an active part of the endocrine system, something I'm going to elaborate on also. Mm -hmm. Then when we go to visceral, it's semi-fluid, and this is the dangerous stuff. It's referred to as abdominal fat, belly fat, organ fat, and it's, the, it's basically described as central obesity, and this is the stuff you're worried about. Mm -hmm. um, so it's packed in between the organs as opposed to ectopic, which is actually in the organs. It's a different type of fat entirely. So this is between the organs, and, and if you've ever seen a legit bear, beer belly, mm -hmm. where uh, you know an otherwise thin-looking man has this vast protuberance. I mean, the belly is just, and it looks hard. You, yep. you'll recognize it if you see it. Very dangerous stuff because that is the stuff that's tied to a number of obesity-related diseases mm -hmm. and all-cause mortality. So it's it's a big deal. And the men, it's the it's that like it's the hard stomach. Hard. That's, that's yeah. what's yeah. so creepy about it. Like, yeah. Like yeah. It's, yeah. It's creepy. <laughs> um, and then the bummer of this is that higher stress is linked to it. So through stress alone, you can increase your mm -hmm. level of visceral fat. 
hmm. just from stress, you know, cortisol and all the things that go along with it. Well, <laughs> I'm working on it, buddy. <laughs> just slid the um, champagne glass for all those on the podcast. But the upside is that both high intensity interval training and low intensity work can actually reduce your visceral fat. Hmm. So it's by far from something that's out of our control. We can actually act, absolutely address it. Hmm. And then the third kind that we'll talk about, and this will probably be all we'll say about it or I'll say about it is uh, intramuscular. And, and typically this, this is the actual fat stores within the muscle cells themselves and, or maybe it's just outside of the cells, but either way it's packaged right with them. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, in any case, typically it's a bad thing in sedentary, in sedentary people. It's absolutely a bad thing, but in athletes, it's quite the contrary. It's, it's a good thing. It's on-site storage, just like glycogen is on-site storage. Mm. So if you have as an endurance athlete, intramuscular fat stores, this is a good thing. That's yet another fuel source from which to draw. It's also a good thing for cows. I was just going to say it makes them tasty. That's, yeah. That's what I want. So maybe ribeye, yeah. yeah. rib that's yeah. intermuscular yeah. fat yeah. sirloin. When there's no flex, that's, yeah. that's not intermuscular fat. Yeah. Yeah. And, and th so this form of fat is, like I said, potentially dangerous unless it's insulin insensitive mm -hmm. or I'm sorry, insulin sensitive, which in the case of athletes, we tend to be very insulin sensitive. So these, these IMTGs, intramuscular tri triglyceride stores are actually a boon. Not, not a, not a harmful. So just to say it again, subcutaneous fat below your skin, visceral by your organs. That's really like uh, hard. And that's uh -huh. the dangerous stuff. Intermuscular that's in your, your muscles. And that's the, uh, sirloin versus, versus ribeye. Yep. And women typically have more of this intramuscular fat stores and they use more of it. Maybe they use more because they have it. I don't know, but Pretty either much. way. It's intermuscular, don't worry about it. I don't even know not. if there's a way to as measure it. As an endurance it. athlete, I mean, even if you could measure it, as an endurance athlete, you would take pride in the fact that you have more of it than the than the rider next to you. You don't mm -hmm. want uh, visceral fat, but if you're an endurance athlete, you're probably working that down. And then uh, for performance, subcutaneous is what we want to get rid of uh, normally. Because we don't think a lot of endurance athletes, especially when you have that really small waist, mm -hmm. you, you don't have a lot of uh, visceral fat to get rid of. Mm -hmm. you, you're trying to get rid of the uh, subcutaneous fat. Yep. Yeah, exactly. True. Okay. So those are the depots. Now there are two, basically two types of fat, two types of adipose tissue. There's white and brown. Mm. So white adipose tissue, WAT is basically energy storage. Um, that, that's predominantly what it does. It also serves as cushioning and insulation. So, I mean, there are other purposes to it, but by, by and large, it's an energy store energy in particular being lipids. <laughs> um, so anytime we have excess glucose circulating in the bloodstream, body packs it away into, into fat stores, uh, how that mechan that mechanism is happens a couple of ways, not really something more we need to cover right now. But, but if you think of free fatty acids floating around in the blood, they're basically a steerified onto a glycerol backbone. So esterification is just the process by which the, the, the free fatty acids are stuck to this, this glycerol, uh, well, glycerol backbone. Mm -hmm. And this is why, or this is where the name comes from triglycerides, glycerol, the, the three fatty acids that are stuck to it. And this takes place inside of the adipocyte, which is just a fat cell. Um, and it's important to understand that there's a constant flux of the free fatty acids in and out of our adipose tissue. And this is largely regulated by insulin. So when insulin's high, we pack it away. When insulin's low, glucagon comes up and free fatty acids are released into the bloodstream. We can actually use them to power mechanical work and yeah. to do a number of other things. Hmm. That's why we want to use uh, that sort of stuff when we spike insulin, that sort of thing. Yeah. And that's why, that's why active. having high insulin levels, uh, uh -huh. like in the case of metabolic disorder and high blood sugar, which spurs high insulin levels and insulin insensitivity eventually is a bad thing because if insulin is constantly in the bloodstream, we can't access fat stores. Insulin will simply won't allow it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. Hmm. So um, I guess on the hormone side. Yeah. So, uh, this, this white adipose tissue is hormonally active and in particular, um, leptin and resistant. And we're just going to talk about leptin cause it's really the only one that's germane to the discussion here. Um, leptin is produced by these white fat cells. 
And uh, it acts on the hypothalamus to basically inhibit thunder. <laughs> thunder. Hunger. <laughs> hunger. <laughs> so hunger like, feels like thunder whatever. at times for sure. Yeah, yeah. So it inhibits hunger. It's the satiety yeah. hormone. It's uh-huh. what tells us our tells us we're full. And the idea being is to limit fat storage mm-hmm. because the more um, white adipose tissue we have, the more leptin we have. So if it worked properly, the more leptin we have, the more we get the signal that we're good. We got enough fat stores brain. We don't need any more. Please tell hunger. Um, uh, please tell me I'm not hungry and, and, and everything goes on as normal. We don't ac- accumulate too much mm-hmm. adipose tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, is the more leptin we have in the system, the more likely our brain can become insensitive to leptin, never really getting that signal. And this is why you can see grotesquely or morbidly obese people even though they have a ton of energy hanging off their bodies, they're hungry all the time. <laughs> and hunger is a hard thing to combat. So yeah. they eat and they get bigger. Yeah. This is why we're a alive. Really, really vicious cycle. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. it's such a driving force. Because we're so good at packing away energy for, yeah. for later use. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> and then this is anecdotal, but always interesting. Uh, the, the, so when you have somebody who's got yeah. like 150, 200 pounds of excess subcutaneous adipose tissue hanging off their bodies, uh-huh. One method of addressing that, I mean, we always talk about you got a proper diet and you got to exercise and do all these things, or you can fast. You can just stop eating. And you think, oh, that can't possibly be healthy. I'll die if I do that. I'll lose all my muscle tissue, et cetera. Uh, it's, not, it's not exactly the way it works. The body's actually really good at preserving life. Uh-huh. And uh, the, the, the most extreme case, the guy who did the longest fast of all time is a man by the name of Angus Barbieri. And this took place back in 1965. And I think by then he was like 30 years of age and he didn't die till like 1990. So he lived like another, what, 25 years past that. Uh He started at 456 pounds, lost 276 pounds of fat. I'm sure some muscle went with it, but I can't imagine there was a heck of a lot in there. To, and he basically only cut it off because he reached his goal weight of 180 pounds. Wow. So he's like, okay, now I'm good. Because the doctors, this was not planned. He was not planning to go in for an extended fast. I think it was just supposed to be like a week long or a 10 long day, 10 day long fast. And he just kept riding it out. They gave him uh, antioxidants. I'm not sure in what form. Vitamins. Um, oh, I'm sorry, not antioxidants, electrolytes vitamins and and like a literal multivitamin, nothing yeah. more specific than that. And, water. and then carbonated water, black coffee and tea. Dude lost a ton of weight over 382 days. That's amazing. Yeah. So That's he, more than a year. He was in the, I watched a documentary on this. He was in the hospital the whole time for this. Yeah. But, he was supervised, yeah. Yeah, but, but still, 382 days of not eating and just it went away. Yeah. It's just body um, used it. Yeah, but think too yeah. how long it took, 382 days, yeah. right, of not eating. Of not eating. Whew. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. His FTP probably went down during that time. <laughs> but I'm guessing he could do next to nothing. I don't know, though. It was, there, there, there's some interesting stuff takes place when you fast. I uh, yeah. Probably no high-intensity stuff, but he'd probably walk around and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> it's in that fat-burning zone. I, I doubt a lot of it, uh, exercise was taking place. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, the other type of tissue, um, so, so adipose tissue. So we have white adipose tissue, and we also have black, or I'm sorry, brown adipose uh-huh. tissue, BAT. And these adipocytes, these fat cells, actually generate body heat. Huh. Um, extremely interesting. And I'll, I'll explain why I revisited this line of uh, inquiry in, in a short while here. They're located uh, basically in the neck and in large blood vessels of the trunk, what's called the supraclavicular region. So we're talking about, you think your collarbones and upward. Hmm. And basically, um, I don't think it's my theory. I think the reason is, is they're, they're there to insulate particular blood vessels, the ones that take blood from the heart and get it up to the brain. So, yeah. 
Hmm. And so, okay, so bear with me. This is a it's a mouthful, but they generate heat by uncoupling the respiratory chain of oxidative phosphorylation within our mitochondria. Oh, of course, of course, yeah, yeah, right? logical. Makes, yeah, sense makes sense to everybody. Sense. Yeah. And they do this via what's called the UCP one, which is uncoupling protein one. So all this means is that. When we, when we metabolize fuel aerobically within the mitochondria, there's this proton gradient on, on one of the two membranes. And this basically dissipates that proton gradient. So rather than allowing, <clears throat> um, I just jumped trucks here. Mm -hmm. Energy for dead air guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, why he, why he thinks of that. We are getting a six-person sauna. We got it big enough that we can fit a bike in it, and it has its own TV screen in there that we can hook up stuff to. Serious? That's yeah, a TV. it has a TV screen because it's got to like the sauna. Yes, because it's got to be cool. special to be able to take the heat. Because you can't put like your iPhone or iPad in a sauna because it will say like too yeah, hot. It'll too too hot. I am so down. pumped. So I think we can put the feedback sports trainer. I don't have the guts to put like an electronic trainer in there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we could do training there, but also we could lay in there after we just train. Like I prefer that. Yeah. Huh. Um, I think I might try a little bit of both. Okay, uh, anyways, on track. so we talk about heat. It. Anyways, go I'm back. Pick up the thread. Okay, so incoming energy that is typically used to produce ATP, so energy so that we can generate muscular contraction, yeah. is instead siphoned off. So this proton gradient is dissipated and it releases heat. And all huh. that does is generate heat. So thermogenesis. We've actually created heat by metabolizing fat hmm. without creating ATP for muscular contraction. And you may ask yourself, why is this? What is the purpose of black? Yeah, or, I'm sorry, brown. I keep saying that brown adipose tissue. And I ask myself the same question. And it basically boils down to the fact that neonates can't shiver. Hmm. Newborn babies do not have the capacity, the muscular capability to, to generate the, to that sort of contraction to heat. shiver. So the only way they can warm, well, they can't warm themselves, can't grab a blanket. I mean, they can't do anything other than rely on this fat to protect those very particular blood vessels. So huh. it's basically a defense mechanism against cold. Interesting. And it was thought that we basically evolve out, or not evolve out of it, but grow out of it. We don't have a use for it anymore as we age, so it goes away, but it turns out it doesn't really go away. And if it does go away, we can actually bring it back. Hmm. And we do that through a process called beijing. Hmm. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's taking white tissue and turning it brown. Hmm. Okay. Pretty, pretty straightforward. And again, this is done with that uncoupling protein. So it interrupts that process, creates body heat instead of creating ATP. And we can induce this via cold exposure. Huh. It's basically how I do it. Spend a lot of time outdoors. And I think this is uh, what Dan Carney's book, What Doesn't Kill Us. And we talk about Wim Hof yep. and doing the ice baths and doing the basically naked hikes up uh, yeah. Everest. Yeah. They've become very good at exposure to cold. You can bet there's a whole lot of brown adipose tissue activity taking place. Interesting. Um, it's also highly reversible. But what's super cool about it is that it takes energy storing fat cells and turns them into energy releasing cells. So our, our fat is actually metabolizing fat effectively, which is just, yeah, it, it, uh, this brain. is metabolically active fat. Huh. It is a thing. Cause, be, cause when I got this question, my initial response was to say fat's not metabolically active. Well, mm -hmm. maybe not white adipose tissue, but brown adipose tissue absolutely is. Huh. And then what kicked all this off is a study just very recently surfaced just a couple of weeks ago that links caffeine to an increase in this UCP one, this, this uncoupling protein. Huh. Which means it's just another excuse to drink caffeine. But it also says that caffeine may do something to help our white stores become more like brown stores to become more thermogenic, more metabolically active. And there was also something in there about an upregulation in PGC1 alpha. So now our fat cells within their nuclei are actually kicking out this, this, uh, this uh, master switch of mitochondrial biogenesis, telling our muscle cells produce more mitochondria. So it's, it's a win-win. Uh-huh. 
Interesting. So it probably All doesn't caffeine in that case. It probably doesn't make you faster on the bike. Having like, no, but it, it it sets the stage for greater work capacity because if we have more mitochondria, we can metabolize mm-hmm. more energy aerobically, which means we can um, consume more oxygen, which increases our work capacity. Plain and simple. So it's but it's uh, in relatively speaking, it's a very small percentage of the fat that we probably have in our bodies. Yeah, I honestly don't. <clears throat> know the particular percentage, but yeah, yeah, it is definitely a small percentage. So I guess getting back it's to it's only like a the... small region of our body too, so it can only be so much, and not a particularly fatty region either. Right. Yeah. So I guess going back to the crux of things, really, fat in most cases isn't metabolically active. However, with brown fat, that that does change, mm-hmm. and it does it does require blood supply. I mean, there is blood going to our fat. So his question regarding. Mm-hmm. relating to blood. I mean, there, there is blood going there, but metabolic activity, not so much right? Yeah, in the white tissue. Yeah. So yeah, you're, I mean, you're making yourself more efficient uh, as the bodies you train and as you, I guess, get rid of, of tissue that you don't need mm-hmm. and not an increased tissue that you do need for performance. So yeah, he's making himself more efficient, but it's probably in this case, I assume with Mark, it's probably as simple as the fact that he had power to improve and he's been training. And as a result, that's getting better. Mm-hmm. And he also had fat to lose. Yeah. And as a result, it was dropping improvements in fitness. <laughs> it's think any more deeply than that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's just really what it is. And that's, that's honestly common to see. I know for those that are listening to this, that have been training Tell for a long time, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> for those that, uh, for those that have been listening to this and training for a long time, I bet you would just kill, kill to be in Mark's shoes, right? To be able to have your power go up and then Mm -hmm. like lose weight because you get to a point where you train enough where you feel like any weight I lose, the power drops too. Right. Uh, but, uh, when you have room to gain on both sides of that equation, uh, pursuing training can, can make that can satisfy Mm -hmm. both sides. Honestly, though, most of us can do it. It's tough. Usually they're not at the same time, Mm -hmm. but all of us probably, most of us, not all of us have power to gain and we have weight to lose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it goes. So our body composition to improve. Yes. Not really. That's what you want. That's what you really want. Yeah. Fat loss. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, Ryan says, have I reached my biological limit? Another somewhat theoretical question. On yeah, this. Very, yeah. And kind of along the lines of what we just talked about. Mm-hmm. He says, I train in fairly, in a fairly structured way for a non-trivial amount of hours a week, six to 10 hours. I've been doing so for the last five ish years. I'm very consistent with the occasional vacation or work trip getting in the way. I do intervals, maybe too many. And he says, sweet spot intervals, zone one, zone two, etc." as I should. He says, despite training well, eating mostly right and doing the things that I should, I just can't seem to get my FTP past the 3.4 to 3.6 watt per kilogram level. I've had a couple coaches in the past, but after using them for a while, again, despite doing what they asked, I can break through, or I can't break through that ceiling. The eight to 10 ish hours a week is my limit in order to keep my family training work recovery, uh, balanced. So just adding volume isn't an option for me. Fair and common. Yep. What can I do to burst through this plateau or have I just reached my biological limit given my volume constraints? And he says, I do have one catch. I have hereditary high cholesterol diet makes very little difference and have been on a statin since I was a teenager. I've read some, which is medication. Um, he says, I've read some studies that statins and endurance sports don't mix well, but I'm wondering if this really applies to me as they all had elite. And he says in quotes, athletes as subjects, he says, I'm five foot, seven inches, 70 kilograms. I could stand to lose a few pounds, but I'm certainly not overweight. So um, statins is a, med- are a medication used to address high blood pressure. Yep. There we are. So I guess we can get to more of the crux of what this guy is really talking about. Um, in the sense that 
he's basically asking if he's reached his limit. And so many people ask this question, whether it's in the podcast or internally, you've wondered, am I just forever capped? Yeah. When you push up against the same plateau mm-hmm. time and time again, it makes you ask that very question. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think that like the, the main thing is when you get into that position where you feel like you're up against the plateau, a lot of it comes down to optimizing and we can always optimize further, uh, within some degree. Like I, yeah. I think about it with my, with like all the things that affect it, your performance really is a product of all of the variables in your life, right? They all add in mm-hmm. and you can always optimize different aspects of life. So chances are you can probably improve from where you're at, but within the constraints that you have, that, that kind of gets tricky. Yeah, probably in um, his major constraint sounds like his time, which mm-hmm. again, common, extremely common, Pretty much everyone's major constraint. But I guess getting a little deeper chat, if you want on this one, uh, we can go into some of the, the science yeah. behind things. So first off, <laughs> <clears throat> we're, we're, we have to assume that you're a youngster. Well, I, we, no, no. Can, we can assume either way. Yeah, so mi- said, middle-aged probably. You right? got to assume, yeah. 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 He's, he's mm-hmm. been well, on statins we don't since know. a teenager. So mm-hmm. we don't know. But um, if he's 55. If he's 55, that's a pretty great strength-to-weight ratio. Yeah. If he's 25, uh, there probably could some be, room to grow. Yeah, 20 to 25. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. So age would be good to tell us on, on a question like this about yes, genetic limits. absolutely. Mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, if you're 55, that's... You know, we have that forum post about the bell curve of cyclists mm-hmm. for our users. Yep. And I don't have it right here in front of me, but the 55, if you're 55 and you're in that area, you're you're pretty golden, actually. Like, oh, yeah. That's golden. Oh, that's um, good. You're pretty good. Yeah. And if you're 65, you're amazing. Yeah. yeah. And you can find that on forum.trainerroad.com. Yep. Okay. So let's first talk about some potentially easy gets. And I say mm-hmm. potentially because they sound, well, I probably should have labeled them as simple gets because mm-hmm. they might not be easy. First, mm-hmm. address the quality of your recovery and, and start with sleep. Obviously, nutrition is a huge part of that, but nutrition is such a big topic. I don't even want to touch it. Um, sleep, however, is super super common in that anyone can benefit from an additional hour per night or an additional 30 minutes if if you can find a way to squeeze it in there um, so with that aside, consider the possibility that you are overtrained and that every year you reach this point because you reach a particular point of overtraining. You hit the same plateau because for whatever reason, you're throwing too much stress at your body and it reaches that point where it simply can't adapt further. Maybe you need more recovery. That's a good point because he said he's super consistent with the occasional like work trip. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times work trips for me are not recovery. Yeah. Like oh, yeah, they're, the some, they're, they're harder than regular day life because yeah. you're just doing everything, getting up early, and you're this is a, less sleep. Yes. And it's an easy thing not to consider that. I mean, I obviously need to train more. There's no possibility that I need to train less. Well, maybe you do. And maybe it's just one hour less a week so that you can get a little extra sleep a couple nights. I mean, it, it might be as subtle as that. Um, but if not, there are uh, potentially uh, not even tougher gets, but more complex gets. And Could in I, particular, you have to train, change the way you train. Could you talk about a couple more easy gets? Sure. Um, two things on this table. One would be alcohol. Yeah. Oh, if yes. you drink alcohol, we've talked about before, uh, your, your body's not recovering while you're yeah. drinking alcohol. It's processing alcohol. Mm-hmm. And um, it affects your sleep. So if you do yeah. it in the evening, which a lot of people do imbibe yeah. in the evening hours, yeah. it people, will impact your sleep quality. People think that it helps you sleep. It's the opposite. Helps <laughs> you get sleep. But it yeah. doesn't help you sleep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like your sleep quality is, is worse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is caffeine. Caffeine after a certain amount of time for the majority of the population. Depending on how sensitive of a responder you are. Yeah, and how, how quickly you metabolize it and um, how uh, um, uh, for a certain part of the population, it might help you sleep, but you, you kind of know if you are or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even decaf coffee can have 30 milligrams of caffeine Minuscule in it. amounts of caffeine, yep. yeah. Uh, and if some, I mean, the half-life, I think, depending on how fast you metabolize things, can be like 
it's hours, right? Six to nine hours. Yeah, that's yeah. a half-life. So half of it's gone in there. So mm -hmm. when uh, my rule is nothing afternoon and then try to go to bed at 8, 30, 9, 10. Yeah. Um, but that cutting out caffeine, if you want to go extreme, cut out cutting out caffeine or completely. Just, yeah, or completely, yeah. Or make mm -hmm. sure that you cut it off by a certain time of day. And yeah. maybe, you know, if you're having sleep issues at all, then maybe noon's still too late. You need to do it 10 a.m., 9 a.m. And I think there's a, a, a portion of the population who does not think they have sleep issues because they've done this for so long. Mm -hmm. But I would, uh, if you really want to try to squeeze it out, just try it. Like, and maybe switch to decaf at 10 a.m. and then stop all caffeine at two or something like that. Mm -hmm. If you're a big co caffeine addict or coffee addict. <laughs> yeah, good points. I guess on the tougher side of things. <clears throat> yeah, so he, he's doing the same type of training year after year after year, and it's not uh, yielding any further results. So obviously that form of training has to change. The stimulus has to change. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and really you can, you can try a different uh, composition of training. You know, maybe you shift toward one thing over the other, or you can try a, an, a different, an entirely different approach, a different type of periodization. And what springs to mind is blocking your training. So block periodization where you're really trying to increase the training density. So you're not, you're not amplifying or elevating the volume. You're not really messing with the intensity. Rather, you're focusing, you're limiting your focus, mm -hmm. you're getting, you're getting tight with it and, and maintaining other systems while you speci specifically target one particular energy system, even though they all overlap, but one particular mm -hmm. type of uh, intensity. Mm -hmm. Um, this is, it's really subjective. Some people respond really well to it. Um, how long you block, how many days con consecutive days of training within the blocks, um, how many days you have to recover afterwards. It takes a lot of self-knowledge. Yeah. So this is for, and when I say advanced athletes, I don't necessarily mean super high performing athletes so much as athletes who have trained for a very long time. And in your case, done it the same way. So you know very much what you're working with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You have to understand how your body responds to a really high level because there are professional athletes that train a huge amount and they still don't quite perhaps have enough information to be able to, to yeah, know Yeah, it's always a learning process. And just because someone's ex exceptionally fast doesn't mean they're particularly good at training themselves. Okay. I want to just talk about that point for one second okay. because there could be, there, your parents have such a big thing in this. Mm -hmm. There can be a pro who trains way less optimally than you and be faster than you. And I think people don't realize that <laughs> or a local person where they can train way less optimally than you. And because of your parents, your genetics, um, you can train, you know, 50% better you're using air quotes mm -hmm. and still not be as fast as that person. Mm -hmm. And that's just the way life is. And it doesn't yeah. mean that how that person trains is the way you need to train. I know. So that's, that's what, the, that's the important, that's thing. what happened. Like, well, this person does this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That genetic component cannot be under, under played or uh, no. underemphasized. It's, mm -hmm. It's, it's an unfair advantage, so to speak. I mean, some people have it, some people don't, and there's not a lot to do with yeah. it. So this is an example more or less of basically like what you could do to try to nudge things, uh, break them loose and, and yeah. see some progress. Break yeah, your so, plateau. So yeah. by blocking your training, um, you're doing a couple of things. You're focusing on one specific type of training for a period of time, and you're stacking workouts. Mm -hmm. So you're not doing day on, day off sort of stuff. Rather, you're going a couple days in a row, maybe three days in a row, maybe five days in a row. Again, mm -hmm. subjective depends on not only the intensity of the work, but what you know about yourself. How much work can you take before you start to crack? Okay. Um, so I've, I've laid out a few examples, one being a, a VO block. So an aerobic capacity block where you do high intensity work and high intensity work you, can be, can be done in a number of ways. We've done the, the, the short shorts. You can do the three or four minute intervals. You can, 
you can skin the cat in a number of ways, but the idea here is, and this is just an example, is to do five days of hit in the first week. So five days of these high intensity intervals. So maybe it's three on, one off, two on, one off sort of thing, mm-hmm. but a ton of work. And then for the remaining three weeks of this four week block, you simply hit that once a week while you go back to low intensity for all, all the other workouts. Mm-hmm. So you delivered a really huge stimulus, one that probably had you reeling, took you several days to recover from. Yeah. Then you got back on the bike and you just continued to touch that up once a week while you did a bunch of low intensity work. Mm-hmm. To kind of absorb and recover example. from the Exactly, training. exactly. Without ever defamiliarizing, for, for lack of a better term, uh, yourself with the stress of the high intensity work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe a muscle endurance block. So like a sweet spot slash threshold block. Mm-hmm. Say, say you do a two week block of this. And within that you do four days in a row of sweet spot workouts. Then you take three days off or easy, depending on what your level of recoverability is and how, how quickly it takes or how quickly you can bounce back. Then maybe you do a three day block and then four days of off or easy. There's your two week block. You really hit that one particular type of fitness a couple times over the course of this. And in most cases, you're going to get some form of bump or you won't, in which case, you know, well, the structure of that didn't work for me or that type of work isn't something I need to address. It's not, it's not what's limiting me. And then another type would be an endurance block. And this is a really common one. So, so for example, a two week endurance block where you go and ride 60, 65, maybe 70% of your threshold, but basically aerobic endurance where most of the time you can not necessarily breathe through your nose, but you're never breathing hard. Mm-hmm. You can speak in full sentences, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in this case, maybe you do two or three days of this stacked. Uh, if you're, if you're a rider who's accustomed to riding 20 hours a week, or if you just have a reasonably high level of fitness, maybe these are four or five hour rides, three days in a row. Mm-hmm. Then you take a couple of days off, maybe just one day off because it's low intensity work and you can bounce back a lot faster from the low intensity stuff than the high intensity. And then you repeat the sequence again, do this for 12, 14, 21 days. If you want to make it a three week block. And there's your endurance block. If you think your aerobic capacity is your limiter and you want to address it from the low side, the low intensity side of things. Yeah. Yeah. So these are all like different ways that you could nudge things depending on what, you know. Yep. And I have some, some tips and some caveats that absolutely need to be kept in mind. If you decide to go this route, one way to like, this could sound complex for some people. If you're on our plans, one way to start is let's say we go Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday for the hard workouts, Mm -hmm. try going like move Thursday to Wednesday and just go two in a row. Just do exactly that. And try a two day block. Yep. See how it goes. Don't jump right into a three, four, five day block. God, no five day block, but Mm -hmm. even a two day block, even doing two back to back hard workouts can make an impact that you would not expect. And then try three. And then you go to mid volume where you have the Saturday and Sunday and you Mm -hmm. do four in a row. Mm -hmm. So four in a row, then three easy days after that. Well, and see, that's, that's, that's the big caveat. You have to balance this high load of training with a high load, so to speak of recovery. Uh And it's excessive. It's, it's kind of boringly excessive, but do it right. You put yourself in such a hole that, that you're, you welcome at least the first couple of days of recovery. Oh yeah. And yeah. then you probably take one or two more to be <laughs> safe or because if you do it a couple of times and you jump back in a little too soon, you'll feel the repercussions real quickly. Yeah. I feel like you really have to, uh, you have to be extremely aware of how your body is responding. And just, sometimes yeah. you won't be able to measure or figure out exactly <clears throat> how it is. Right. But mm-hmm. just like you said, erring on the side of caution is extremely important because it's hard. Absolutely. For, it's a new stimulus. It's something that maybe we're not used to feeling. We don't know how our body is going to respond. Yeah. So if you do that much work, and you're on the recovery side of that mm-hmm. and you feel like, I don't, I, I, I don't quite know, maybe another day. Absolutely. Err on the side of caution. Mm-hmm. Um, and then o- over the course of it, closely monitor both your sleep and your nutrition. Mm-hmm. I mean, sleep shouldn't come at the, at the detriment of, of this form of training. So if you're having trouble getting to sleep at night, 
and you're tossing and turning, you've already gone too far, now it's time to start your recovery segment. Mm-hmm. Or just recognize, I loaded four days in a row, probably should have done three. Um, and also monitor your nutrition because these blocks require a whole lot of nutrition. I mean, you could even load prior and then of course you gotta stay on top of it during. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards there's the recovery process that needs to be fueled too. So you can't just get on the other side of it and stop eating because you're not doing work. Right. Don't try to change body composition during Absolutely when you start not. one of these new Absolutely blocks. Absolutely not. This would be like trying to change yeah. body composition over the course of a really important race. Yeah, yeah. you wouldn't Don't want do to do that. Yeah, yeah. Your goal is to increase your performance potential there. You know what I mean? Like that's yep. what you're working on. And then temporarily forego your worry about overtraining syndrome. I mean, do pay attention to how you're feeling. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But the, I mean, if you're looking at heart rate variability, all these things, they're going to be whacked out for a little while because oh, you're yeah. heeping a whole extra ba- amount of stress on your body. Mm-hmm. So, and it's typically if you, if you do a short enough block, you're not going to push yourself into that, that realm anyway. Mm-hmm. So don't be as concerned as you would be over the longer term yeah. when you do these short term um, modifications. Yeah. And then a, a key to this and kind of related to, to, to watching your overtraining possibility is that each workout's quality should mimic that of the prior workouts. So this isn't start real high and decline, decline, decline. Mm-hmm. Each workout should be really obviously productive. Mm-hmm. If you get to the point where you see a sharp decline and you just can't muster it, that's it. Cut the, pull the plug. Yep. It's time to enter the recovery portion of this uh, block. It doesn't mean to say that you'll just feel perfect every day going through this. No, no, you know, no. You may feel don't be fatigued. You may feel more fatigued, but you're able to perform. But you can do the workouts, yep, and you can exactly. do them to to. They should meet the requirements mm-hmm. yeah. of the workout specifications, um, and then. Obviously, it goes without saying, I'm going to say it anyway, assess before repeating any blocks. Yeah. Because if you don't see some form of, of improvement, that block didn't work. I mean, or something mm-hmm. about that block didn't work. So don't do the same thing again and expect different results. Yeah, exactly. And, right. and for Ryan, um, another way to do this is just to raise your FTP. Because yeah. like, um, let's say, I, I just raise it five watts and do what you've been doing. Oh, you mean nudge up your... Yeah, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. and then raise it again five watts and do what you're doing until you fail. Um, yeah. I think some people, you get caught in the same FTP for too long. That's a good point. Um, mm-hmm. And just that alone, yeah. uh, and even if you're doing the ramp test and it's the same, but if you've been stuck there for a while, yeah. like something's got to change. So this is another Try way to, over, to overload every single workout just a little bit yep. um, to kind of to break through that plateau. Yep. Yeah, <clears> absolutely. <throat> And then let me touch on statins really quickly sure. since that's part of this question. Um, so earlier in my training days, I had a pretty naive viewpoint when it came to statins. And I saw general practitioners and big pharma as these ugly, evil uh, forces. Mm-hmm. And that general practitioners didn't want to deal with patients and they simply threw statins at them. You have high blood pressure, take statins. You know, mm-hmm. I've since reshaped my views and, and, and part cholesterol. Of, yeah. Cholesterol. I'm yeah. sorry. I said high yeah. blood pressure. Yeah. yeah. Cholesterol. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's what I meant. So scratch that uh, <laughs> 10 minutes ago, high cholesterol. Um, but as a personal trainer, I kind of gained a bit of empathy as much as I'm going to get without actually being a, a, a medical professional mm-hmm. in that clients would come to me and they would want body composition changes, but they weren't willing to change their diet. They come in and they'd hit it hard for two, three, five days a week, but they wouldn't change the way they ate. Mm -hmm. So if you're a physician faced with the same thing as someone comes in with high cholesterol and they refuse to change their diet, what do you do but prescribe a medication that can address it? And I would uh, argue that probably the majority of people that they see too refuse to exercise and change the diet. On top of it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 So I... I apologize for being being, uh, naive. Um, But with that said, do consider the quality of your nutrition or your nutrition, your physician. Um, Find one that recognizes that there are other factors that contribute to atherosclerosis. That's a mouthful. It's not just about 
uh, high, uh, it's not just about monitoring your, your cholesterol. There are yeah. other aspects of the, mm-hmm. of the syndrome or illness. Um, and then uh, commonly you'll read about doctors who prescribe more drugs to treat side effects of the drugs they just prescribed. Obviously, if you're in that cycle, try to break it. Yep. Uh, these are things that are a little outside my realm of recommendation, but I'm going to make them anyway. And um, it can just be genetic too. So you can have great diet and mm-hmm. exercise and mm-hmm. you can have high cholesterol and that can be dangerous for you, which I think is in Ryan's case. Like Probably yeah. if he's 3. been 6, on him since a teenager. Yeah. 3.6 watts per kilo. Mm-hmm. Like I think he was 154 pounds. Yeah. Uh, training eight to 10 hours a week. And I'm guessing his nutrition's pretty good to be able to do that. Yep. Uh, Statins could be life-saving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you, that's just what you need. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah exactly. So I guess then, what are the harmful side yeah, effects? Yeah, so with statins, between? there are a lot of a lot of potential side effects. And I, I just limited my list to the ones that, will, that could potentially affect endurance performance. And mm-hmm. one of them is that it cause, can cause mitochondrial deficiency. And I've even seen it re, uh, related as uh, mitochondrial malignancy. So mm-hmm. if you think you're doing damage to your mitochondria, obviously it's going to impact your aerobic performance. And as endurance athletes, that's pretty much everything. Um, there is a possibility of liver damage and anytime you damage the liver, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're sitting on the couch or you're riding a bike. As Nate pours more champagne. <laughs> it's not working. Yeah. Um, there's been reports, frequent reports, of course, of muscle pain, fatigue, and weakness. Clearly that can mon- uh, affect your performance on the bike. Mm-hmm. And then elevated blood sugar is another thing that gets cited a lot, but in endurance athletes, that's typically not a big deal. Um, but it can of course lead to metabolic syndrome and eventually type two adult onset diabetes. So hmm. elevated blood sugar is not typically a good, you know, it's never a good thing. Hmm. So these are things that are possibly or are associated with statins and could be the case in your, in, in your situation. Who are we talking to? Ryan? Ryan. Mm-hmm. I'm going to recap worth for considering. Ryan. So basically, uh, optimize first, see if there's, there's chances are there are plenty of ways you can yeah. optimize. All of us can, like you said, your time constrained, which is one of the most difficult ones to push up there's against. Easy gets and there's more elaborate ones. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and then if you want to try to, to, to break things and kind of nudge it free, uh, honestly, raising your FTP is a good, good way to go about it. It's a simple one and too. the most simple way probably to go about it. Um, and if you want to get deeper into it, then you can look at stacking days back to back and mm-hmm. seeing if you can do that, take your two VO two days or two threshold days. Put them together. And it's called, they refer to it as block periodization, and that is one model of periodization, but it doesn't have to be that technical. Don't go right. get a book on block periodization because it'll explode your brain. There's, yeah. there's so much information, and it's a really technical form of training. Simply start blocking workouts. Yeah. Rather than see it as block periodization, just see it as blocking a, a set of workouts. Yep. And then uh, outside of that, uh, the information on statins there that you had. Uh, it's all set. So potential issue. We're going to skip down to Ryan's question, if that's okay, guys. Um, and then if you're joining us on YouTube, you can ask your questions live, which would be awesome. Uh, we'll ask, actually answer some of those yeah. after this episode. Ryan's? Or uh, yeah, Casey. forgive me. Ryan's, Ryan's question is where we're going to go ahead. Oh, okay. Casey? We did Ryan's. Casey is the one. Yes. <laughs> forgive me. There it is. Okay. Casey says, how much of threshold riding is simply pain management versus raw capabilities? And is there a way to measure pain threshold in general? For most of my life, I've been told I must have a high pain tolerance, and I'm curious how that affects my cycling capacity to push through points that may stop other riders. 
this is one that like I always bump up against this. Like uh, if you go into the ER or anything else like that and they ask you like what your pain level is <clears throat> and it's like zero to 10, I struggle with that every time because oh, I don't really know if I know what 10 is like and then what's yeah, it's a I, different you know, type of pain tolerance. But when they do that, what they're looking for is changes. So they don't care if you say two, yeah. what they want, they don't want you to go two and then you go like four, they're like, Ooh, something's worse. Then they need to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Quickly. But, yeah. but the point is what I'm getting at here with this is the fact that I've often felt the same like dissonance, uh, or perhaps like a different experience in terms of pain tolerance in other people. And I've wondered if it is because of endurance sports, like mm -hmm. it's, oh, yeah. it's a worthy question for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I'm going to be forthright and tell you, I've cribbed most of this from a collection of Matt Fitzgerald's books. I think he has a real good insight mm -hmm. on this particular topic and the limits of, uh, human performance, both on the physiologic side and the psychological side. Mm -hmm. And Great he puts resource. it as a physical fitness represents our actual physical limits, pretty straightforward. Whereas mental fitness is how close you can push yourself to those limits, both mm -hmm. during racing and during your workouts. Mm -hmm. And this is something that can be trained just like, just like you train your body, train your mind. We've talked about this a number of times. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really boils down to coping skills. And I remember back in the days of teaching my classes, I always talked about coping mechanisms said, so today I'm going to suggest this as a coping mechanism. And they basically evolved into what is now termed as bailouts. But there's also some psychological ones. Like uh, I remember Chris Horner back in the day um, would do this counting thing. Huh. I'd see him. I'd be watching a criterium. I'd have done the Masters 1-2-3 race. The P-1-2 race would be gone. Horner would be there. And I'd see him rolling around the course on a break with that kind of grin that he almost always had on his <laughs> yeah. face. Yeah, yeah. And he would be mouthing something the whole time. Huh. And I it read about it later, and he was actually counting. He would count to a point and then count backwards or count by fives. And either way, he was trying to distract his brain from the pain so that he could thing. continue. Yeah. That's it's crazy. A, it's an effective coping skill. I've never coping heard mechanism. of somebody else doing that. Yeah. I thought it was just me. Wow. Huh. Yeah. So it's, uh, and there are a lot of ways you can do it. Yeah. Ton of ways. Ton of ways. And I it's, mean, it's just race like visualization. I'm, I'm, I'm cresting that final climb. I got to gut this out for 30 more seconds. I mean, there, there's so many ways you can go about it. It's just a distraction really for me. You know what I mean? Like a, that's a that's productive kind of, distraction. Yeah, yeah. A productive one. One that keeps right. you on task, but you know, mm -hmm. distracts you a little bit from how much you're suffering. And I don't know if the, just the metronomic nature of being, you know, counting one after another kind of helps. Something Whatever like works for you. Yeah. 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 And it may not, it may be rhythmic and maybe not, it may not, maybe that rhythm distracts you. Maybe it yeah. has to be, you know, yeah. asyncopated. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Huh. So, and then he draws a distinction between having more to give versus have versus giving more of what you have. So, which, which I find particular interest, particularly interesting too, because mm -hmm. this is what allows lesser athletes to beat those impossible opponents. Oh yeah. Is, you know, I may not be as strong as that guy, but I'm willing to give more than that guy today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. And in a lot of this, like you can find, like you're talking about Matt Fitzgerald, we've talked about this book. You can, if you search, this is one of his books, this is yeah. pulled from or cold from a, a, a few of his books, but the, how bad do you want it? Yeah. Where most of this comes from. So if you search, how bad do you want to ask a cycling coach podcast, you'll find previous episodes. And we actually had Matt Fitzgerald on our podcast to, to, to talk a lot about this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, we had a live episode at Rafa cycle club in San Francisco. Yep. So you can check that one out too. And this is scientifically termed as the psychobiological model of endurance performance. So, mm -hmm. You know, the psychological system mashed up or mashed into combined with the biological system. Mm -hmm. And then one study in particular, um, they used cold water immersion and they actually tied, tied it to childhood adversity. Whoa. So they would ask the people involved in the, in the experiment, basically what, what level of, uh, how difficult was your childhood? to put it really simply. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that the best results, the people who had the highest pain tolerance came from the, the, um, 
participants who were in between the extremes. They didn't have no stress and they didn't have ample stress. They were somewhere in between. So they had a, a, a mildly challenging childhood. Hmm. Enough stress that they, or enough adversity that they learned how to surmount it yeah. and, and processed it positively rather than were you know, overrun by it or not exposed to it at all. Do you guys want to do a cold water immersion competition between us? <laughs> I don't. No. Come on. <laughs> I don't. No. That I want to do so it. Very fun. You I do? We could. I yeah, totally we do could. It'd be, guys. it'd be way more enjoyable than a muscle biopsy. So I could. Oh, I yeah. think I could I get do both. That. <laughs> At the same time, why not? Yeah. I'd rather just race you on bikes. I like that better. Yeah. Your VO two max is higher than mine. <laughs> Running then. I don't. I don't know. I know, Something, but I, yeah. it's, it's the same. <laughs> Yeah. I would see if we could have a pain competition to really see who I can handle the most pain. So I hate being cold. Well, yeah. then I think you wouldn't do so well. <laughs> this is correct. You can predict my performance. Bail out early. Yeah, I hate being cold. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, and then also what they found is that um, people developed better pain tolerance if they incurred their setbacks within the sporting context. Mm -hmm. So, if these if these other forms, later forms of adversity, came during sporting efforts or sporting events. They learned how to uh, positively benefit from that. I wonder if that's because even if it's something as silly as like, you know, a $10 or like a, a, a chain lube cream or something else, we tie that into like striving and, and enduring pain into achievement. And I wonder if that's because we've kind of Perhaps, you know solidified yeah. that model. Cause it's kind of silly. Like when you stop <clears> and think about it, most of us just race for nothing really. Like we're not getting paid anything else like that. But you know, we, we create, I don't know, this relationship of achievement sure. being valuable yeah. enough to offset it. It's status too. <clears throat> yeah, humans sure. crave status. Sure. Uh, yeah. mm -hmm. and some people more than others, but that's when you win a premium, you get a higher status. Yeah, exactly. But, well, regardless of how we improve our pain tolerance, though, it, it benefits us as endurance athletes. Oh, Absolutely yeah. does. I oh, mean, yeah. don't really need to argue that. <laughs> yeah. in, in the book, we're talking about how bad do you want it? Frank Shorter, the guy who won the U.S. gold for the marathon in 1972, had a particularly tough upbringing, a lot of abuse at the hands of his father. And he basically attributed his high pain tolerance to the fact that not only did he know pain was coming, but he knew how long and how severe it was going to be. And mm -hmm. this allowed him to, to mitigate the harmful psychological effects. He could get through it. Oh, yeah. I think is, that's that's a huge thing for me. I need to look at what I'm going to do or have an idea of what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I don't, I don't revel or relish suffering at all. I, I'm not there. There's that side of things where people like, you know, really go into that, but I don't, I, I don't like it, but I have to be prepared for it. And if I'm not prepared for it, I find that I underperform. I don't, I don't sure. reach my physical capabilities. I, I, I don't, you know, I'm not ready to yeah. do it. But there's, there's just a tremendous benefit in knowing that not, not only that it's going to hurt, but you have some expectation and, and some, uh, familiarity, some experience with not only how long you're going to have to do it, you know, how long the race is mm -hmm. or how long the climb is or how long the, the, the last couple of laps are going to take but also how severe that pain is going to be. And, mm -hmm. and just mentally bracing yourself for for that goes a long way toward enduring it. Yeah. And uh, for everyone out there too, you can be last place in the race, but experience more pain than anyone else in the race. Just, <laughs> I mean, just because someone's faster than you doesn't mean that they go deeper or harder than you. Oh, and yeah. you see That's people true. like who beat you on climbs, like, oh, it's just because they go deeper. No, it's probably, I mean, they're training, nutrition, parents. It's a component, yeah. but only but, a but component. Someone could be go way less hard than you. Like I think um, Brandon, our climber, mm -hmm. he didn't have to drop me on a climb. He doesn't even have to go hard. Sure. Right. Right? <laughs> I could go deeper than I could pass out and not keep up with him on a climb when he's just going threshold. Yep. Yeah, it's That's just the way yeah. it is. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You can't just you can't have crap fitness and be the toughest guy around and win races. It's, it doesn't work that tidily. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, but, but I'm that, just saying you, you can have to have it all. 
you can work on this and be really tough, mentally tough. It's, that's always going to be better for everything in your life. Mm -hmm. um, and don't think that you're not improving on this if you're getting beat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fair. Do you have any, what do you do to prepare yourself before a race like that, Nate? Uh, to mentally, I guess, prepare yourself for that? I, I, nothing. So you just go in, you're fine with it? I think so, yeah. Huh. Chad? I think I, I have a, an opposite thing where if I, <coughs> if I build it up too much in my head, um, then I'm... Like if it's, I care about the race too much, I can kind of underperform. Interesting. Uh, huh. But if, yeah. Huh. You, Chad? Hard workouts. Yeah. And plain and simple. I know a lot of people don't want to do their hardest workouts in training. They'd rather save that performance for race day. And I'm quite the opposite where I'd rather have my hardest efforts, my hardest, uh, my greatest amount of suffering in my workout. So that when race day comes around, I know I'm, I'm braced for anything that's, that's going to be thrown at me. Yeah. I gain the same strength from that, from that tactic for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good thing to do. Um, if you guys have any coping mechanisms like this or things that you use to kind of mentally prepare yourself for, for a race, anything like that, let us know. This is like always a fascinating topic because I feel like it's something that everybody can experiment with instead of us talking about like block periodization, where it might be really tough for one person to be able to implement that all of us can dip our toe into the waters of mental preparation sure. and experimentation with that sort of a thing. So it's pretty interesting. Uh, we're going to jump into the live questions that have been submitted from YouTube. Great. You got um, one, Nate? I got a couple. First, cool. if you're watching live, please upvote um, that or give us a, a thumbs up. That'll help us spread this video and help the channel. Yep. Um, someone asked about when will the integration with Wahoo outside head units be ready? Mm. And uh, don't have a timeline, but someone is working on it right now. So uh, A that, great engineer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that means it's it's... It's a priority and we're working as fast as we can, but there's, we haven't done this with them before. So there's an unknown and there's, after we get our work done, there's a, uh, a portion that Wahoo will have to do mm -hmm. and that we don't have control over. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Let's scan through and find a couple of them. A lot of people are talking about different things that, uh, I guess, uh, even on the medication side with statins and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Interesting to see that conversation and you guys can join this. It's, it's pretty helpful, uh, to have more of you guys in here. There are a ton, but to a lot have of people are on statins. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's pretty, uh, yeah, yeah. Well-fueled oh. discussion. Someone asked, <clears throat> what would you recommend for tr uh, for trying to train for a race at elevation, 9,000 feet base, when you live at 4,500 feet and are not able to stay up high? Uh, that's hmm. exactly what's going to happen to Jonathan, except higher, <laughs> um, almost the exact elevations. Yeah. And uh, you don't really train for it. Um, you can just either get there as soon before the race you can, that's what, that's what it sounds like the best thing for you to do is mm -hmm. try to arrive right before the race. Because mm -hmm. if you can't stay up there, um, the worst thing you do is get there like four days before. Yeah. Um, when you're in the throes of acclimatization. Yeah. That's, uh, there's really not that I've been aware of a way to, to like to train for like, there's nothing to do. No, just, just train like you normally train, yeah. get as fit as you can possibly get and yep. then get there as close to the start of the race as you can. I mean, yeah. like day of if possible, but n yeah. you know, day before. If and that's necessary. what we're doing with Jonathan. We're going to get this packet pickup and then drive back down lower down to Frisco yeah. and then drive him Frisco, up yeah. the, the day of, mm -hmm. which is, it's not such a bad idea to, to, to have these kind of drives at elevation because especially on a big race like Leadville, you're going to want to eat a big full meal three to four hours before. Yeah. Um, and I would sacrifice a little bit of sleep. Your sleep's going to be interrupted anyways. Yeah. And since the drive's a little bit longer, you can get your food, hop in the car, eat. <laughs> and like like for Leadville anyways, you're going to wake up before. It's not like you're going to do start Leadville fasted. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's not smart. What's the elevation yeah. of Frisco? Is it pretty similar to Reno? It's, uh, no, it's higher. It's 7,000. Oh, but yeah. it's way better than 10,000. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And we're even going to be in Fresco, or Frisco, not very 
soon. Not very long. Yeah. 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 So, so really, so, race morning should be the time that he like shows up an hour before the race. Yeah. And then goes. So some interesting points on this. First of all, we've covered the elevation uh, in previous episodes. If you look at that, uh, you can search like um, el- high elevation adaptation with the, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast, and you'll find it. We talked about this the study that where they referenced Team Sky. I'm not sure it was an official study, but um, no, it was just it was just shared information basically. Yeah. Uh, which who knows? They may have they may be just trying to throw everybody off. Oh no, I'm good. Um, <laughs> Nate going to refill again. <laughs> Still have to, um, I do have a cold. Yes, yeah, true. But ch- basically, within Don't this, and and Nate, you remember this one <laughs> where they basically said that they saw increased performance every day basically once they got to elevation. So we know that that's out there. However, that isn't at, that wasn't like an official study. So we just were taking what we know from official studies that said, reversing all of that anecdotally, I don't have problems at elevation, relatively speaking to like what most people have. And then I've gone up three days before last year, I looked at this and went back and looked, mm-hmm. I went up to basically 9,000 feet at mammoth for nationals. And I went up there and I was there three and a half, almost four days early. And I did great. There was that, like, honestly, you may be able to say that the performance improved, but I felt great. I did great. And I've never, ever had a problem at elevation. Great. So Leadville's even higher. So, and remember your one mile run to the aid station? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's hard. Yeah. I was running way over my sustainable pace there. That's a different okay. matter. Right. Cause I was afraid we were going to miss you, mm-hmm. but I'm going up to nationals three days early now. Um, and it's just what works out for my schedule and the family and work and everything else. That's just what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm not too worried about it, but this goes back to the point of, you have to know how your body responds to this sort of stuff. Um, you know, I've talked well, you to, you might not know. Yeah, you might. And that's yeah. the point. You might not know. You're about so to then, learn. <laughs> well, no, I know. Yeah, yeah, because you've done it before. But exactly Zachary right. might. This might be uh, exploratory. Exactly. So if you don't know, throw something at the wall, see what sticks. Go based off of the information that we have. That basically showing up day of or showing up two weeks usually. In Winter Park's how high? Nine thousand feet, basically. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when you say you haven't had problems in elevation, are you saying relative to other people you don't have a big drop? Yeah. Or your FTP doesn't change elevation. Uh, my FTP still changes for sure. Yeah. And my but performance changes, but relative to other people, no. I've you never. You think once... you change less, right? Yes. That relative to other people, you perform better than. Yeah. Uh, like if we both were to do an FTP test at fourteen thousand feet, sure. The relative difference, you would do better than I would Perhaps. based on past performance. Perhaps. No, yeah. I think I'm the opposite. I perform way better at sea level relative to other people that go from Reno down to sea level. Yeah, use and use that. That's that's definitely noticeable in yeah. in in your racing. Yeah, when I race together, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like way stronger at sea level. Oh yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. So, and it's just, some people are like that. And then the other side of things with elevation too, I always wonder how much of it is mental. Um, how much, because you do feel shortness of breath. You do, sure. you know what I mean? And you do run out faster. You psych yourself out. And I think that you can really put yourself in I'm leaning toward with you at sea level. You know, when I go to sea level, I'm going to be faster. So if no, there's a, a beautiful placebo effect going on there. Might be. Some partly anyway. Yeah. yeah. I see it was, it was an observation afterwards rather yeah. than a, uh, I gotcha. Then, uh, I, I think I do well. I think I do well. But it's really after recently than... racing with Jonathan at sea level, um, doing a good job against him. I was like, Oh, well, cause uh, he's my measuring yeah. stick. Cause sure. everyone yeah. else I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But regardless, the placebo effect still could be in play thereafter. And it's even helping sure. you even more. Yeah. So you always want to think if you can mm-hmm. convince yourself you're better at doing great. whatever, it's always a plus. Yeah. It's yeah. never a detriment. So with my basically going up to nationals, I'll be statistically what they say is like the worst uh, way to do it. And then with Leadville, I'll be going up the day before, basically. Um, well, it'd be cool to see the differences see in your yeah, perception 
between yep. those two. Uh, and I'll try to be as fair and, 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 and analytical as possible in trying to understand it's what hard. the differences are. It's very different energy systems for those Entirely two races. Entirely different races. Yeah. Yeah. But the way you feel even just leading up to the race, you know, I should be able to tell theoretically, like I should feel worse, right, up at higher elevation. Um, but we'll see. Uh, so yeah, it's in, once again, going back to like what we talked about with, you know, trying to nudge up your, your threshold by introducing different things, that sort of a stuff. You really have to know how your body responds. Uh, another question from somebody, uh, I lost the question now, but basically mm. going from low volume to mid volume plan, what is a good way to gradually go into it? Make the, make the leap. Yeah. Then, then to make, just make the leap. You think you No, that's the question. You're yeah, asking yeah, how, exactly. how to transition between the two. Yep. Mm -hmm. If you think it's more, I have an idea. <clears throat> Okay. Shoot. Basically drop that Wednesday workout. So, uh, what the difference is, is usually the Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday could all be longer, but also you have an extra workout on that Wednesday mm -hmm. and that can be a bit longer. Mm -hmm. I think keeping those intensity days a little, so you make your Tuesday, Thursday, which your intensity a little bit longer, but the Wednesday you can make completely off mm -hmm. and then that will then be an easier, um, slide into it. And once you're good at that, you can add Wednesday add back Wednesday, in. Yeah. And the Wednesday is supposed to be a recuperative ride and it's, pegged at a particular percentage, which might not be recuperative for everybody. Some athletes have, have, uh, improved their fitness to a point where riding at 65% actually feels like a recovery ride. Some people need to be down at 40, 50%. And if you're jumping from low volume up to mid volume, then that workout in particular might not, it might be the one that kind of unsticks everything it might be the one that makes that Thursday workout tougher Thursday workout affects the weekend. And stuff just continues to go downhill. So I completely agree. That'd be the first workout I'd pull out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Somebody says, can you explain muscle fatigue versus muscle cramping at 65 miles and beyond? It's very precise. <laughs> uh, how can I overcome muscle locking up? So, um, <clears throat> we've talked about cramping <laughs> I and, wish. and this emoji, the guy with the hands in the air, that's <laughs> basically the response to cramping because the fact is we really don't know. X causes Y, like with cramping, like we really don't yeah. know that yet, but, um, we certainly do know that there are plenty of factors that play into it. And when you do stress your, your, when your muscles are under or experiencing more stress than what they're used to, uh, then you're going to be pushing them into levels yeah. of fatigue that may cause I will cramping. say precision hydration has pointed out that like 80% of their people that go to their pH 1500. So, so that really bump up their sodium intake, uh -huh. stop experiencing cramps uh -huh. and given, you know, they're a hydration company, so they're going to want to take the slant, but I also see them as being reasonably objective and it has worked for me uh -huh. anecdotally. So it, can't hurt. Just check your sodium intake and see maybe mm -hmm. that has some positive impact because I mean, there's a clear distinction between the fatigue that gradually onsets mm -hmm. and, and cramps that just knock you off your bike. I feel there. like taking the other side of things, probably one of the best ways to guarantee that you can cramp if that's what you want to go after is don't train for something and then throw well, yourself yeah. straight into it. Yeah. And that's like the other side of it. I feel like a lot of people have these big bucket list events, right? Mm -hmm. And they show up and they haven't trained adequately for it. And what I mean by that mm -hmm. is you can go out, let's say like, uh, I think this weekend is the death ride, right? It's a really popular one here in, in California, this region, mm -hmm. a big day. A lot of people are going to be out there for like nine hours, 10 hours even. And for those riders, uh, they may have ridden nine or 10 hours, but they haven't done, they haven't, you know, the on, intensity. Exactly. Cause yeah. on race day, they're going to go harder. The climbs are steeper. <clears throat> the climbs yeah. are longer. It's going to force you to get higher drastically exceed your current capabilities and not expect some sort of blowback. Yeah. And it's never tied to a specific duration. Uh, never think 
that I cramp at 60 miles, uh, something like that. It's really just about you overreaching or not having that adequate nutrition on, on board. Yeah. That's the best wrong. safest bet. We still don't fully know. Um, Todd's in here asking about variability index that we were going to cover your question this week, Todd, but it's pushed to next week. Yep. So yeah. don't worry, Todd, we're going to answer it. Yep. We'll cover the variability index one. That'll be interested. Yeah. Um, let's see somebody, uh, something interesting. Somebody, John says counting is really interesting. I grew up swimming <clears throat> and counting yardage on the trainer, 25 yards per 15 seconds, visualizing turns and closing out those 1000 yard, 10 minute intervals. It helps a lot. I can see that, I guess, even in a pool, I can if you have markers, that sort of a thing, you're kind of used to ticking things mm -hmm. off like that. Sure. Um, I do that on like really hard climbs. A lot of the time I'll look at road markers, 1000 yards in 10 minutes. That is crazy. Yeah. That's minute per 100. That is crazy fast. John must be really fast. That is really, I mean, that's <laughs> collegiate level. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. C1 collegiate. One of the things that I've done on cycling too, is like I use road markers sometimes when I'm like, just mm -hmm. keep going a little more, just keep going a little more, go to that road marker, go to the next one. You know what I mean? Uh, anything visual that you can do, uh, can really help with that. So, um, let's see. Somebody asked, and I don't know if we can really dive into this one right now, but it is an interesting point. Somebody says, does elevation affect aerobic versus anaerobic athletes differently? Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, uh, yes and no. You're, you're any event over, you know, a couple of minutes is going to be largely aerobic anyway. So it's going to impact everyone to, to some degree. And you're only going to go aerobic so frequently over the course of uh, an otherwise aerobic event. Mm. So how much you can rely on your uh, anaerobic work capacity, I don't, I don't know that it's ever going to be that much of a factor. I mean, that's yeah. going to be icing on everyone's cake anyway. It's just going to be how well you're aerobically adapted. Yeah. Because getting back to elevation, the other thing, too, that people, I think, fail to realize, especially with a mountain bike race, because mountain bikers always start really hard, mm -hmm. and then the nature of the course usually means that you have to pedal you know, up really steep things. Mm -hmm. Uh, it really does. The higher you go, it really becomes a battle of your threshold, so to speak, yeah, because your it, aerobic capabilities. Yep. Because if you go beyond your aerobic capabilities, uh, then you put yourself in a situation where it's much harder to recover and continue at the same level of performance. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, in endurance sport, there aren't really anaerobic athletes. You can't really pin someone as an anaerobic athlete. I mean, world-class sprinters are hugely aerobic athletes until they have to be very anaerobic for a very brief period of time. Right. Yeah, exactly. We need to talk about our Leadville strategy. Okay. Something changed. Um, someone said uh, Frisco is at nine thousand, and it is. Ooh. Uh, Ooh. So golden then? No, I think we should stay in Denver. Denver is an hour and forty-four the, minutes away. That's golden. Yeah, it's oh, golden. The, the, oh, yeah, the, the mouth of the canyon. The mouth of the canyon where you drive from there. Yep. There yeah. you go. So now you're basically back in Reno. Yeah. Yeah. Then it's fifty-six hundred feet. Yep. Yeah. So pretty. We're forty-two, Super forty-five. Close. Yeah. Cool. Pretty close. close. Enough. We can Not stay. like 9,000. Yeah. We actually, I think we can stay right there by Yeti HQ. There's a hotel that us Yeti ambassadors uh, can go to. Oh, cool. You'll get the vibe. Yeah. Get some good rates. So. There's a good cider bar there too, or <laughs> oh, cider yeah. factory. That's right. We went there. It's a good Distillery? Place. Do they distill cider? Distillery. Yeah. It was a cider distillery. Yeah, that's what they good. called it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, well, golden, it'll be then. Okay. that That's better. <laughs> and, and still that time. So maybe mm -hmm. not an hour 44 out in golden. Maybe it's, I don't know how far. An yeah. hour and 15 minutes, and that's not so bad. Yeah, it's like a, I think it's closer to, maybe it's closer to two even, but um, we'll, we'll check on it. Uh, we'll see what it is. Uh, last question. Uh, hour 35. Hour 35, cool. 
All right. Last question. Uh, this one says, what did, what do I do if I'm a crit racer in season? I'm on the sweet spot, meaning that he's racing regularly. I assume is what he means by in season. I'm on the sweet spot base two plan for about three weeks now. And races are coming up this weekend. Should I stick to my plan or should I just jump right now to the crit specialty plan? No, stick to your plan. Yes. Stick to your plan. You're not going to see any massive, uh, jump forward in performance capabilities by just immersing yourself in the specialty plan and, and the type of fitness that the specialty plan offers compared to that, that you're going to get from the sweet spot plan. It's not going to be tremendously more beneficial. Yep. Keep on building that muscle endurance. Mm -hmm. And then you can layer on layer on top of that, the more specific fitness later on. I mean, even over the course of the criteriums, it's yeah. S stay the course. We've talked about this so many times, uh, about sweet spot base two being a play. You can race right in sweet spot base two and get some great results. Still. Yeah. I have many times. Nate's yep. done it just recently. And when we're talking about subbing in races into a training plan, uh, you can sub it in for your Saturday, the ride that you have, just make sure that you account for any, how fatiguing will that race be? Are you doing like two or three crits in one day and you're really going to be really fatigued? And in that case, you might want to adjust workouts going forward. Um, unless it's an A race, something really big, I wouldn't suggest needing to taper, uh, through this or anything else and adjust the workouts leading into it. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's what I would do. And it can be the opposite too for a crit. Cause if you're doing one crit, it's 45 minutes long, but you usually have a 90 minute workout. Mm -hmm. And, uh, especially if you race a crit, if you sit in and just do one effort, yeah, you're gonna mm -hmm. have to pad that race. Yeah. It could be a 40 TSS day rather than 120 TSS day. Yeah. Uh, so you do that over five weeks and you can, you have 500 less TSS than you normally would. Yeah. Uh, and that could be, it can be know. rough. It can be rough. Yeah. Yep. Uh, somebody says watch I 70 traffic on race morning going up there. Yeah. I've, I've heard the same thing. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll watch for it. Don't worry about it. Yeah, we'll get you there <laughs> plenty early. Leadville's going to be a long day, so, uh, it'll be what it is. I feel like getting up. <clears throat> yeah. We can get up plenty early. Sure. Can, I'll just sleep in the car after I three. eat. I'll eat. We'll get in the car. I'll sleep on the way up and then I'll yeah. pedal. I actually life. don't. Whew, if we have two cars, I can sleep in. Yeah. I don't have to be there in the morning. Eh, yeah. It, it, as we can say, as a support crew, it goes by pretty quick. Oh yeah. Yes. No, but I mean, if, so with padding, if you get there two hours before race, I could try to get there at race. Cause I'm going to get the second aid station. You're I, not going to be there for five <clears throat> hours or four, four. I just want to get there right when the gun goes off. <laughs> I don't want to sit there. The yeah. There's no, well, I mean, yeah. it's just going to be tough because you, if there's bad traffic, you don't, you want to have some kind of padding. Sure. If there's an yeah. accident. You yeah. don't want to miss Leadville. Yeah. I just get on. The nice part about that is I'm not stuck in traffic. I can get on a bike and pedal. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, true. it's going to be an extra, extra yeah. 50 miles. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a long no day anyway. Like honestly, you make me climb up from, from golden at 5,000 to 9,000. <laughs> it's going to be, yeah. Make me ride miles. for 24 hours, day. nine hours. It's all the same. So uh, it's really long. It's longer than a crit. So <laughs> talking to someone who's Everest did, I mean, come on. Yeah. No, this is no big exactly deal. <laughs> all right, everybody. Thanks for joining us on YouTube. Once again, if you joined us live, please give us a thumbs up. That's really helpful. And thanks for all the questions that you submitted. You can submit other ones. Uh, please do so at trainerroad.com slash podcast. And if you like what we do here at trainer road, we would love it. If you checked out what we actually do the app here and everything else that we have, it makes you faster. That's our promise. Uh, and we stand behind it. So thanks everybody for listening and we will talk to you next week. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye.